0: Chapter Thirty of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayette. Qui VEUT délaisser de, de propos las, Pascal. Mister Casaubon had no second attack of equal severity with the first, and in a few days began to recover his usual condition. But Lydgate seemed to think the case worth a great deal of attention he not only used his stethoscope, which had not become a matter of course in practice at that time, but sat quietly by his patient and watched him. To Mr. Casbon's questions about himself he replied that the source of the illness was the common error of intellectual men, a too eager and monotonous application. The remedy was to be satisfied with moderate work and to seek a variety of relaxation. Mr. Brooke, who sat by on one occasion, suggested that Mr. Casaubon should go fishing, as Cadwallader did, and have a turning-room, make toys, table-legs, and that kind of thing. In short, you recommend me to anticipate the arrival of my second childhood, said poor Mr. Casaubon, with some bitterness. These things, he added, looking at Lydgate, would be to me such relaxation as toe-picking is to prisoners in a house of correction. I confess, said Lydgate, smiling, amusement is a rather unsatisfactory prescription. It is something like telling people to keep up their spirits. Perhaps I had better say that you must submit to be mildly bored rather than to go on working. Yes, yes, said Mr. Brooke get dorothea to play backgammon with you in the evenings and shuttlecock now i don't know a finer game than shuttlecock for the daytime i remember it all the fashion to be sure your eyes might not stand that casaubon but you must unbend you know why you might take to some light study conchology now i always think that must be a light study or get dorothea to read you light things "'Smollett, Roderick Random, Humphrey Clinker. They are a little broad, but she may read anything now she's married, you know. I remember they made me laugh uncommonly. There's a droll bit about a postillion's breeches. We have no such humor now. I've gone through all these things, but they might be rather new to you.' As new as eating thistles would have been an answer to represent Mr. Casaubon's feelings but he only bowed resignedly, with due respect to his wife's uncle, and observed that, doubtless the works he mentioned, had served as a resource to a certain order of minds. "'You see,' said the able magistrate to Lydgate, when they were outside the door, "'Casaubon has been a little narrow. It leaves him rather at a loss when you forbid him his particular work, which I believe is something very deep indeed, in the line of research you know.' I would never give way to that. I was always versatile. But a clergyman is tied a little tight. If they would make him a bishop now, he did a very good pamphlet for Peel. He would have more movement then, more show. He might get a little flesh. But I recommend you to talk to Mrs. Casaubon. She is clever enough for anything, is my niece. Tell her her husband wants liveliness, diversion. Put her on amusing tactics. Without Mr. Brooke's advice, Lydgate had determined on speaking to Dorothea. She had not been present while her uncle was throwing out his pleasant suggestions as to the mode in which life at Lowick might be enlivened, but she was usually by her husband's side, and the unaffected signs of intense anxiety in her face and voice about whatever touched his mind or health made a drama which Lydgate was inclined to watch he said to himself that he was only doing right in telling her the truth about her husband's probable future. But he certainly thought also that it would be interesting to talk confidentially with her. A medical man likes to make psychological observations, and sometimes in the pursuit of such studies is too easily tempted into momentous prophecy which life and death easily set at naught." lydgate had often been satirical on this gratuitous prediction and he meant now to be guarded he asked for mrs casaubon but being told that she was out walking he was going away when dorothea and celia appeared both glowing from their struggle with the march wind when lydgate begged to speak with her alone dorothea opened the library door which happened to be the nearest thinking of nothing at that moment but what he might have to say about Mr. casaubon It was the first time she had entered this room since her husband had been taken ill and the servant had chosen not to open the shutters. But there was light enough to read by from the narrow upper panes of the windows. "'You will not mind this sombre light,' said Dorothea, standing in the middle of the room. "'Since you forbade books, the library has been out of the question. But Mr. Casaubon will soon be here again, I hope.' Is he not making progress?" Yes, much more rapid progress than I at first expected. Indeed he is already nearly in his usual state of health. "'Do you not fear that the illness will return?' said Dorothea, whose quick ear had detected some significance in Lydgate's tone. "'Such cases are peculiarly difficult to pronounce upon,' said Lydgate. The only point on which I can be confident. Is that it will be desirable to be very watchful on Mr. Casaubon's account, lest he should in any way strain his nervous power. I beseech you to speak quite plainly, said Dorothea, in an imploring tone. I cannot bear to think that there might be something which I did not know, and which, if I had known it, would have made me act differently. The words came out like a cry it was evident that they were the voice of some mental experience which lay not very far off. "'Sit down,' she added, placing herself on the nearest chair, and throwing off her bonnet and gloves with an instinctive discarding of formality, where a great question of destiny was concerned. "'What you say now justifies my own view,' said Lydgate. "'I think it is one's function as a medical man to hinder regrets of that sort as far as possible.' but I beg you to observe that Mr. Casaubon's case is precisely of the kind in which the issue is most difficult to pronounce upon. He may possibly live for fifteen years or more, without much worse health than he has had hitherto. Dorothea had turned very pale, and when Lydgate paused she said in a low voice, "'You mean if we are very careful?' "'Yes. Careful against mental agitation of all kinds.' and against excessive application. He would be miserable if he had to give up his work, said Dorothea, with a quick provision of that wretchedness. I am aware of that. The only course is to try, by all means, direct and indirect, to moderate and vary his occupations. With a happy concurrence of circumstances there is, as I said, no immediate danger from that affection of the heart which I believe to have been the cause of his late attack. On the other hand, it is possible that the disease may develop itself more rapidly. It is one of those cases in which death is sometimes sudden. Nothing should be neglected which might be affected by such an issue. There was silence for a few moments, while Dorothea sat as if she had been turned to marble, though the life within her was so intense that her mind had never before swept in brief time over an equal range of scenes and motives. "'Help me, pray,' she said, at last, in the same low voice as before. "'Tell me what I can do.' "'What do you think of foreign travel? You have been lately in Rome, I think.' The memories which made this resource utterly hopeless were a new current that shook Dorothea out of her pallid immobility oh that would not do that would be worse than anything she said with a more childlike despondency while the tears rolled down nothing will be of any use that he does not enjoy i wish that i could have spared you this pain said lydgate deeply touched yet wondering about her marriage women just like dorothea had not entered into his traditions it was right of you to tell me i thank you for telling me the truth I wish you to understand that I shall not say anything to enlighten Mr. Casaubon himself. I think it desirable for him to know nothing more than that he must not overwork himself and must observe certain rules. Anxiety of any kind would be precisely the most unfavorable condition for him. Lydgate rose, and Dorothea mechanically rose at the same time, unclasping her cloak and throwing it off as if it stifled her. He was bowing and quitting her, when an impulse, which, if she had been alone, would have turned into a prayer, made her say, with a sob in her voice, "'Oh, you are a wise man, are you not? You know all about life and death. Advise me. Think what I can do. He has been laboring all his life and looking forward. He minds about nothing else, and I mind about nothing else.' For years after, Lydgate remembered the impression produced in him by this involuntary appeal, this cry from soul to soul, without other consciousness than their moving with kindred natures in the same embroiled medium, the same troublous, fitfully illuminated life. But what could he say now except that he should see Mr. Casaubon again to-morrow? When he was gone, Dorothea's tears gushed forth and relieved her stifling oppression. Then she dried her eyes, reminded that her distress must not be betrayed to her husband, and looked round the room, thinking that she must order the servant to attend to it as usual, since Mr. Casaubon might now at any moment wish to enter. On his writing-table there were letters which had lain untouched since the morning when he was taken ill, and among them, as Dorothea well remembered, there were young Ladislaw's letters, the one addressed to her still unopened. The associations of these letters had been made the more painful by that sudden attack of illness which she felt that the agitation caused by her anger might have helped to bring on. It would be time enough to read them when they were again thrust upon her, and she had no inclination to fetch them from the library. But now it occurred to her that they should be put out of her husband's sight whatever might have been the sources of his annoyance about them he must if possible not be annoyed again and she ran her eyes first over the letter addressed to him to assure herself whether or not it would be necessary to write in order to hinder the offensive visit will wrote from rome and began by saying that his obligations to mr casaubon were too deep for all thanks not to seem impertinent it was plain that if he were not grateful he must be the poorest-spirited rascal who had ever found a generous friend. To expand in wordy thanks would be like saying, I am honest. But Will had come to perceive that his defects, which Mr. Casaubon had himself often pointed to, needed for their correction that more strenuous position which his relative's generosity had hitherto prevented from being inevitable. He trusted that he should make the best return— if return, were possible, by showing the effectiveness of the education for which he was indebted, and by ceasing in future to need any diversion towards himself of funds on which others might have a better claim. He was coming to England to try his fortune, as many other men were obliged to do whose only capital was in their brains. A friend Naumann had desired him to take charge of the dispute— the picture painted for Mr. Casaubon, with whose permission and Mrs. Casaubon's will would convey it to Lowick in person, a letter addressed to the post restante in Paris within the fortnight would hinder him, if necessary, from arriving at an inconvenient moment. He enclosed a letter to Mrs. Casaubon in which he continued a discussion about art begun with her in Rome. Opening her own letter, Dorothea saw that it was a lively continuation of his remonstrance with her fanatical sympathy and her want of sturdy, neutral delight in things as they were, an outpouring of his young vivacity which it was impossible to read just now. She had immediately to consider what was to be done about the other letter. There was still time, perhaps, to prevent Will from coming to Lowick. Dorothea ended by giving the letter to her uncle, who was still in the house, and begging him to let Will know that Mr. Casaubon had been ill, and that his health would not allow the reception of any visitors. No one more ready than Mr. Brooke to write a letter. His only difficulty was to write a short one, and his ideas in this case expanded over the three large pages and the inward foldings. He had simply said to Dorothea, "'To be sure.' i will write my dear he's a very clever young fellow this young ladislaw i dare say will be a rising young man it's a good letter marks his sense of things you know however i will tell him about casaubon but the end of mr brooke's pen was a thinking organ evolving sentences especially of a benevolent kind before the rest of his mind could well overtake them it expressed regrets and proposed remedies which, when Mr. Brooke read them, seemed felicitously worded, surprisingly the right thing, and determined a sequel which he had never before thought of. In this case, his pen found it such a pity young Ladislaw should not have come into the neighborhood just at that time, in order that Mr. Brooke might have his acquaintance more fully, and that they might go over the long-neglected Italian drawings together. It also felt such an interest in a young man who was starting in life with a stock of ideas, that by the end of the second page it had persuaded Mr. Brook to invite young Ladislaw, since he could not be received at Lowick, to come to Tipton Grange. Why not? They could find a great many things to do together, and this was a period of peculiar growth. The political horizon was expanding, and, in short, Mr. Brook's pen went off into a little speech which it had lately reported for that imperfectly edited organ, the Middlemarch Pioneer. While Mr. Brooke was sealing this letter, he felt elated with an influx of dim projects, a young man capable of putting ideas into form, the Pioneer purchased to clear the pathway for a new candidate, documents utilized. Who knew what might come of it all? Since Celia was going to marry immediately, it would be very pleasant to have a young fellow at table with him, at least for a time. But he went away without telling Dorothea what he had put into the letter, for she was engaged with her husband, and, in fact, these things were of no importance to her. End of chapter thirty. Chapter thirty one of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. How will you know the pitch of that great bell, too large for you to stir? Let but a flute play neath the fine mixed metal, listen close, till the right note flows forth, a silvery rill. Then shall the huge bell tremble, then the mass, with myriad waves concurrent, shall respond in low, soft unison. Lydgate that evening spoke to Miss Vincy of Mrs. Casaubon, and laid some emphasis on the strong feeling she appeared to have for that formal, studious man, thirty years older than herself. "'Of course she is devoted to her husband,' said Rosamond, implying a notion of necessary sequence which the scientific man regarded as the prettiest possible for a woman. But she was thinking at the same time that it was not so very melancholy to be mistress of Lowick Manor, with a husband likely to die soon. "'Do you think her very handsome?' "'She certainly is handsome, but I have not thought about it,' said Lydgate. "'I suppose it would be unprofessional,' said Rosamond dimpling. "'But how your practice is spreading. You were called in before to the Chettams, I think, and now the Casabons." "'Yes,' said Lydgate, in a tone of compulsory admission.' but i don't really like attending such people so well as the poor the cases are more monotonous and one has to go through more fuss and listen more deferentially to nonsense not more than in middlemarch said rosamond at least you go through wide corridors and have the scent of rose-leaves everywhere that is true mademoiselle de montmorency said lydgate just bending his head to the table and lifting with his fourth finger her delicate handkerchief, which lay at the mouth of her reticule, as if to enjoy its scent, while he looked at her with a smile. But this agreeable holiday freedom, with which Lydgate hovered about the flower of Middlemarch, could not continue indefinitely. It was not more possible to find social isolation in that town than elsewhere, and two people persistently flirting— could by no means escape from the various entanglements weights blows clashings motions by which things severally go on whatever miss vincy did must be remarked and she was perhaps the more conspicuous to admirers and critics because just now mrs vincy after some struggle had gone with fred to stay a little while at stone court there being no other way of at once gratifying old Featherstone, and keeping watch against Mary Garth, who appeared a less tolerable daughter-in-law in proportion as Fred's illness disappeared. Aunt Bulstrode, for example, came a little oftener into Lowick Gate to see Rosamond. Now she was alone. For Mrs. Bulstrode had a true sisterly feeling for her brother, always thinking that he might have married better but wishing well to the children. Now Mrs. Bulstrode had a long-standing intimacy with Mrs. Plymdale. They had nearly the same preferences in silks, patterns for underclothing, china-wear, and clergymen. They confided their little troubles of health and household management to each other, and various little points of superiority on Mrs. Bulstrode's side, namely, more decided seriousness, more admiration for mind, and a house outside the town sometimes served to give color to their conversation without dividing them, well-meaning women both, knowing very little of their own motives. Mrs. Bulstrode, paying a morning visit to Mrs. Plymdale, happened to say that she could not stay longer because she was going to see poor Rosamond. "'Why do you say poor Rosamond?' said Mrs. Plymdale, a round-eyed, sharp little woman, like a tamed falcon." she is so pretty and has been brought up in such thoughtlessness the mother you know had always that levity about her which makes me anxious for the children well harriet if i am to speak my mind said mrs Plymdale with emphasis i must say anybody would suppose you and mr bulstrode would be delighted with what has happened for you have done everything to put mr lydgate forward "'Selina, what do you mean?' said Mrs. Bulstrode, in genuine surprise. "'Not but what I am truly thankful for Ned's sake,' said Mrs. Plymdale. "'He could certainly better afford to keep such a wife than some people can. But I should wish him to look elsewhere. Still a mother has anxieties, and some young men would take to a bad life in consequence. Besides, if I was obliged to speak, I should say I was not fond of strangers coming into a town. "'I don't know, Selina,' said Mrs. Bulstrode, with a little emphasis in her turn. "'Mr. Bulstrode was a stranger here at one time. Abraham and Moses were strangers in the land, and we are told to entertain strangers, and especially,' she added after a slight pause, "'when they are unexceptionable. I was not speaking in a religious sense, Harriet. I spoke as a mother.' "'Selina, I am sure you have never heard me say anything against a niece of mine marrying your son.' "'Oh, it is pride in Miss Fincy. I am sure it is nothing else,' said Mrs. Plymdale, who had never before given all her confidence to Harriet on this subject. "'No young man in Middlemarch was good enough for her. I have heard her mother say as much. That is not a Christian spirit, I think.' But now, from all I hear, she has found a man as proud as herself. "'You don't mean that there is anything between Rosamond and Mr. Lydgate,' said Mrs. Bulstrode, rather mortified at finding out her own ignorance. "'Is it possible you don't know Harriet?' "'Oh, I go about so little, and I'm not fond of gossip. I really never hear any. You see so many people that I don't see. Your circle is rather different from ours.' "'Well,' "'But your own niece, and Mr. Bulstrode's great favourite, and yours too, I am sure, Harriet. I thought, at one time, you meant him for Kate, when she is a little older.' "'I don't believe there can be anything serious at present,' said Mrs. Bulstrode. "'My brother would certainly have told me.' "'Well, people have different ways. But I understand that nobody can see Miss Vincey and Mr. Lydgate together without taking them to be engaged.' However, it is not my business. Shall I put up the pattern of mittens?" After this Mrs. Bulstrode drove to her niece with a mind newly weighted. She was herself handsomely dressed, but she noticed with a little more regret than usual that Rosamond, who was just come in and met in her walking-dress, was almost as expensively equipped. Mrs. Bulstrode was a feminine, smaller edition of her brother. And had none of her husband's low-toned pallor she had a good honest glance and used no circumlocution you are alone i see my dear she said as they entered the drawing-room together looking round gravely rosamond felt sure that her aunt had something particular to say and they sat down near each other nevertheless the quilling inside rosamond's bonnet was so charming that it was impossible not to desire the same kind of thing for Kate, and Mrs. Bulstrode's eyes, which were rather fine, rolled round that ample quilled circuit while she spoke. "'I have just heard something about you that has surprised me very much, Rosamond. "'What is that, aunt?' Rosamond's eyes were also roaming over her aunt's large embroidered collar. "'I can hardly believe it, that you should be engaged without my knowing it, without your father's telling me.' here mrs bulstrode's eyes finally rested on rosamond's who blushed deeply and said i am not engaged aunt how is it that every one says so then that it's the town's talk the town's talk is of very little consequence i think said rosamond inwardly gratified oh my dear be more thoughtful don't despise your neighbours so remember you are turned twenty-two now and you will have no fortune Your father, I am sure, will not be able to spare you anything. Mr. Lydgate is very intellectual and clever. I know there is an attraction in that. I like talking to such men myself, and your uncle finds him very useful. But the profession is a poor one here. To be sure, this life is not everything, but it is seldom a medical man has true religious views. There is too much pride of intellect. And you are not fit to marry a poor man." "'Mr. Lydgate is not a poor man, aunt. He has very high connections.' "'He told me himself he was poor.' "'That is because he is used to people who have a high style of living.' "'My dear Rosamond, you must not think of living in high style.' Rosamond looked down and played with her reticule. She was not a fiery young lady, and had no sharp answers, but she meant to live as she pleased. Then it is really true, said Mrs. Bulstrode, looking very earnestly at her niece. You are thinking of Mr. Lydgate. There is some understanding between you, though your father doesn't know. Be open, my dear Rosamond. Mr. Lydgate has really made you an offer. Poor Rosamond's feelings were very unpleasant. She had been quite easy as to Lydgate's feeling and intention, but now when her aunt put this question, she did not like being unable to say yes her pride was hurt but her habitual control of manner helped her pray excuse me aunt i would rather not speak on the subject you would not give your heart to a man without a decided prospect i trust my dear and think of the two excellent offers i know of that you have refused and one still within your reach if you will not throw it away I knew a very great beauty who married badly at last by doing so. Mr. Ned Plymdale is a nice young man, some might think good-looking, and an only son, and a large business of that kind is better than a profession. Not that marrying is everything. I would have you seek first the kingdom of God. But a girl should keep her heart within her own power. "'I should never give it to Mr. Ned Plymdale, if it were. I have already refused him. If I loved, I should love it once and without change,' said Rosamond, with a great sense of being a romantic heroine and playing the part prettily. "'I see how it is, my dear,' said Mrs. Bulstrode, in a melancholy voice, rising to go. "'You have allowed your affections to be engaged without return.' no indeed aunt said rosamond with emphasis then you are quite confident that mr lydgate has a serious attachment to you rosamond's cheeks by this time were persistently burning and she felt much mortification she chose to be silent and her aunt went away all the more convinced mr bulstrode in things worldly and indifferent was disposed to do what his wife bade him and she now, without telling her reasons, desired him on the next opportunity to find out in conversation with Mr. Lydgate whether he had any intention of marrying soon. The result was a decided negative. Mr. Bulstrode, on being cross-questioned, showed that Lydgate had spoken as no man would who had any attachment that could issue in matrimony. Mrs. Bulstrode now felt that she had a serious duty before her, and she soon managed to arrange a tete-a-tete with Lydgate, in which she passed from inquiries about Fred Vincy's health and expressions of her sincere anxiety for her brother's large family, to general remarks on the dangers which lay before young people with regard to their settlement in life. Young men were often wild and disappointing, making little return for the money spent on them and a girl was exposed to many circumstances which might interfere with her prospects. Especially when she has great attractions, and her parents see much company, said Mrs. Bulstrode. Gentlemen pay her attention, and engross her all to themselves for the mere pleasure of the moment, and that drives off others. I think it is a heavy responsibility, Mr. Lydgate, to interfere with the prospects of any girl." Here Mrs. Bulstrode fixed her eyes on him, with an unmistakable purpose of warning, if not of rebuke. Clearly, said Lydgate, looking at her, perhaps even staring a little in return, on the other hand, a man must be a great coxcomb to go about without a notion that he must not pay attention to a young lady lest she should fall in love with him, or lest others should think she must. Oh, Mr. Lydgate, you know well what your advantages are. You know that our young men here cannot cope with you. When you frequent a house it may militate very much against a girl's making a desirable settlement in life, and prevent her from accepting offers even if they are made. Lydgate was less flattered by his advantage over Middlemarch Orlando's than he was annoyed by the perception of Mrs. Bulstrode's meaning. She felt that she had spoken as impressively as it was necessary to do, and that in using the superior word militate she had thrown a noble drapery over a mass of particulars which were still evident enough. Lydgate was fuming a little, pushed his hair back with one hand, felt curiously in his waistcoat pocket with the other, and then stooped to beckon the tiny black spaniel, which had the insight to decline his hollow caresses. It would not have been decent to go away, because he had been dining with other guests and had just taken tea. But Mrs. Bulstrode, having no doubt that she had been understood, turned the conversation. Solomon's proverbs, I think, have omitted to say that as the sore palate findeth grit, so an uneasy consciousness heareth innuendos. The next day Mr. Fairbrother parting from Lydgate in the street, supposed that they should meet at Vincey's in the evening. Lydgate answered curtly, no. He had work to do. He must give up going out in the evening. What? You're going to get lashed to the mast, eh? And are stopping your ears? said the vicar. Well, if you don't mean to be won by the sirens, you are right to take precautions in time. A few days before... Lydgate would have taken no notice of these words as anything more than the vicar's usual way of putting things. They seemed now to convey an innuendo which confirmed the impression that he had been making a fool of himself, and behaving so as to be misunderstood. Not, he believed, by Rosamond herself. She, he felt sure, took everything as lightly as he intended it. She had an exquisite tact and insight in relation to all points of manners, but the people she lived among were blunderers and busybodies. However, the mistake should go no farther. He resolved, and kept his resolution, that he would not go to Mr. Vincy's except on business. Rosamond became very unhappy. The uneasiness first stirred by her aunt's questions grew and grew, till at the end of ten days that she had not seen Lydgate, it grew into a terror at the blank that might possibly come, into foreboding of that ready, fatal sponge which so cheaply wipes out the hopes of mortals. The world would have a new dreariness for her, as a wilderness that a magician's spells had turned for a little while into a garden. She felt that she was beginning to know the pang of disappointed love, and that no other man could be the occasion of such delightful aerial building as she had been enjoying for the last six months. Poor Rosamond lost her appetite, and felt as forlorn as Ariadna, as a charming stage Ariadna left behind with all her boxes full of costumes, and no hope of a coach. There are many wonderful mixtures in the world which are all alike called love, and claim the privileges of a sublime rage which is an apology for everything, in literature and the drama. Happily Rosamond did not think of committing any desperate act. She plaited her fair hair as beautifully as usual, and kept herself proudly calm. Her most cheerful supposition was that her aunt Bulstrode had interfered in some way to hinder Lydgate's visits. Everything was better than a spontaneous indifference in him any one who imagines ten days too short a time, not for falling into leanness, lightness, or other measurable effects of passion, but, for the whole spiritual circuit of alarmed conjecture and disappointment, is ignorant of what can go on in the elegant leisure of a young lady's mind. On the eleventh day, however, Lydgate, when leaving Stone Court, was requested by Mrs. Vincy to let her husband know that there was a marked change in Mr. Featherstone's health, and that she wished him to come to Stone Court on that day. Now Lydgate might have called at the warehouse, or might have written a message on a leaf of his pocket-book and left it at the door. Yet these simple devices apparently did not occur to him, from which we may conclude that he had no strong objection to calling at the house at an hour when Mr. Vincy was not at home, and leaving the message with Miss Vincy." A man may, from various motives, decline to give his company, but perhaps not even a sage would be gratified that nobody missed him. It would be a graceful easy way of piecing on the new habits to the old, to have a few playful words with Rosamond about his resistance to dissipation, and his firm resolve to take long fasts even from sweet sounds. It must be confessed also that momentary speculations as to all the possible grounds for mrs bulstrode's hints had managed to get woven like slight clinging hairs into the more substantial web of his thoughts miss vincy was alone and blushed so deeply when lydgate came in that he felt a corresponding embarrassment and instead of any playfulness he began at once to speak of his reason for calling and to beg her, almost formally, to deliver the message to her father. Rosamond, who at the first moment felt as if her happiness were returning, was keenly hurt by Lydgate's manner. Her blush had departed, and she assented coldly, without adding an unnecessary word, some trivial chain-work which she had in her hands, enabling her to avoid looking at Lydgate higher than his chin in all failures the beginning is certainly the half of the whole. After sitting two long moments while he moved his whip and could say nothing, Lydgate rose to go, and Rosamond, made nervous by her struggle between mortification and the wish not to betray it, dropped her chain as if startled, and rose too mechanically. Lydgate instantaneously stooped to pick up the chain, When he rose he was very near to a lovely face, set on a fair long neck which he had been used to see turning about under the most perfect management of self-contented grace. But as he raised his eyes now he saw a certain helpless quivering which touched him quite newly, and made him look at Rosamond with a questioning flash. At this moment she was as natural as she had ever been when she was five years old. She felt that her tears had risen, and it was no use to try to do anything else than let them stay like water on a blue flower, or let them fall over her cheeks even as they would. That moment of naturalness was the crystallizing feather-touch. It shook flirtation into love. Remember that the ambitious man who was looking at those forget-me-nots under the water was very warm-hearted and rash. He did not know where the chain went. An idea had thrilled through the recesses within him, which had a miraculous effect in raising the power of passionate love lying buried there in no sealed sepulchre, but under the lightest, easily pierced mould. His words were quite abrupt and awkward, but the tone made them sound like an ardent, appealing avowal. "'What is the matter? You are distressed. Tell me, pray.' Rosamond had never been spoken to in such tones before. I am not sure that she knew what the words were, but she looked at Lydgate, and the tears fell over her cheeks. There could have been no more complete answer than the silence. And Lydgate, forgetting everything else, completely mastered by the outrush of tenderness at the sudden belief that this sweet young creature depended on him for her joy, actually put his arms round her, folding her gently and protectingly. He was used to being gentle with the weakened suffering, and kissed each of the two large tears. This was a strange way of arriving at an understanding, but it was a short way. Rosamond was not angry, but she moved backward a little in timid happiness, and Lydgate could now sit near her and speak less incompletely. Rosamond had to make her little confession, and he poured out words of gratitude and tenderness with impulsive lavishment. In half an hour he left the house an engaged man, whose soul was not his own, but the woman's to whom he had bound himself. He came again in the evening to speak with Mr. Vincy, who, just returned from Stone Court, was feeling sure that it would not be long before he heard of Mr. Featherstone's demise. The felicitous word, demise, which had seasonably occurred to him, had raised his spirits even above their usual evening pitch. The right word is always a power, and communicates its definiteness to our action. Considered as a demise, old Featherstone's death assumed a merely legal aspect, so that Mr. Vincey could tap his snuff-box over it and be jovial, without even an intermittent affectation of solemnity and Mr. Vincy hated both solemnity and affectation. Who was ever awestruck about a testator, or sang a hymn on the title to a real property? Mr. Vincy was inclined to take a jovial view of all things that evening. He even observed to Lydgate that Fred had got the family constitution after all, and would be as fine a fellow as ever again, and when his approbation of Rosamond's engagement was asked for, he gave it with astonishing facility, passing at once to general remarks on the desirableness of matrimony for young men and maidens, and apparently deducing from the whole the appropriateness of a little more punch. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 of Middlemarch by George Eliot This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. RECORDING BY MARGARET ESPAYAT THEY'LL TAKE SUGGESTION AS A CAT LAPS MILK Shakespeare, TEMPEST The triumphant confidence of the mayor founded on Mr. Featherstone's insistent demand that Fred and his mother should not leave him was a feeble emotion compared with all that was agitating the breasts of the old man's blood-relations who naturally manifested more their sense of the family tie and were more visibly numerous now that he had become bedridden naturally for when poor peter had occupied his armchair in the wainscoted parlour no assiduous beetles for whom the cook prepares boiling water could have been less welcome on a hearth which they had reasons for preferring than those persons whose featherstone blood was ill nourished Not from penuriousness on their part, but from poverty. Brother Solomon and Sister Jane were rich, and the family candor and total abstinence from false politeness with which they were always received seemed to them no argument that their brother, in the solemn act of making his will, would overlook the superior claims of wealth. Themselves, at least, he had never been unnatural enough to banish from his house and it seemed hardly eccentric that he should have kept away brother Jonah, sister Martha, and the rest, who had no shadow of such claims. They knew, Peter's maxim, that money was a good egg and should be laid in a warm nest. But brother Jonah, sister Martha, and all the needy exiles held a different point of view. Probabilities are as various as the faces to be seen at will in fretwork or paper hangings. Every form is there, from Jupiter to Judy, if you only look with creative inclination. To the poorer and least favored, it seemed likely that, since Peter had done nothing for them in his life, he would remember them at the last. Jonah argued that men liked to make a surprise of their wills, while Martha said that nobody need be surprised, if he left the best part of his money to those who least expected it. Also it was not to be thought but that an own brother lying there with dropsy in his legs must come to feel that blood was thicker than water, and if he didn't alter his will he might have money by him. At any rate, some blood relations should be on the premises and on the watch against those who were hardly relations at all. Such things had been known as forged wills and disputed wills, which seemed to have the golden hazy advantage of somehow enabling non-legatees to live out of them. Again, those who were no blood relations might be caught making away with things, and poor Peter lying there helpless. Somebody should be on the watch. But in this conclusion they were at one with Solomon and Jane, also some nephews, nieces, and cousins, arguing with still greater subtlety as to what might be done by a man able to will away his property and give himself large treats of oddity, felt in a handsome sort of way that there was a family interest to be attended to, and thought of Stone Court as a place which it would be nothing but right for them to visit. Sister Martha, otherwise Mrs. Cranch, living with some wheeziness in the chalky flats, could not undertake the journey, but her son, as being poor Peter's own nephew, could represent her advantageously, and watch lest his uncle Jonah should make an unfair use of the improbable things which seemed likely to happen. In fact, there was a general sense running in the Featherstone blood that everybody must watch everybody else, and that it would be well for everybody else to reflect that the Almighty was watching him. Thus Stone Court continually saw one or other blood relation alighting or departing, and Mary Garth had the unpleasant task of carrying their messages to Mr. Featherstone, who would see none of them, and sent her down with the still more unpleasant task of telling them so. As manager of the household she felt bound to ask them in good provincial fashion to stay and eat. "'but she chose to consult Mrs. Vincy on the point "'of extra downstairs consumption now that Mr. Featherstone was laid up. "'Oh, my dear, you must do things handsomely "'where there's last illness and a property. "'God knows I don't grudge them every ham in the house, "'only save the best for the funeral. "'Have some stuffed veal always, and a fine cheese and cut. "'You must expect to keep open house in these last illnesses.' said liberal Mrs. Vincy, once more of cheerful note and bright plumage. But some of the visitors alighted and did not depart after the handsome treating to veal and ham. Brother Jonah, for example. There are such unpleasant people in most families. Perhaps even in the highest aristocracy there are brobdingnag specimens, gigantically in debt and bloated at greater expense. Brother Jonah, I say, having come down in the world, was mainly supported by a calling which he was modest enough not to boast of, though it was much better than swindling either on exchange or turf, but which did not require his presence at Brassing so long as he had a good corner to sit in and a supply of food. He chose the kitchen corner, partly because he liked it best, and partly because he did not want to sit with Solomon, concerning whom he had a strong brotherly opinion. Seated in a famous armchair and in his best suit, constantly within sight of good cheer, he had a comfortable consciousness of being on the premises, mingled with fleeting suggestions of Sunday and the bar at the Green Man, and he informed Mary Garth that he should not go out of reach of his brother Peter while that poor fellow was above ground. The troublesome ones in a family are usually either the wits or the idiots. Jonah was the wit among the Featherstones, and joked with the maid-servants when they came about the hearth, but seemed to consider Miss Garth a suspicious character, and followed her with cold eyes. Mary would have borne this one pair of eyes with comparative ease, but unfortunately there was a young Cranch, who having come all the way from the chalky flats to represent his mother and watch his uncle Jonah also felt it his duty to stay and to sit chiefly in the kitchen to give his uncle company. Young Cranch was not exactly the balancing point between the wit and the idiot, verging slightly towards the latter type, and squinting so as to leave everything in doubt about his sentiments except that they were not of a forcible character. When Mary Garth entered the kitchen and Mr. Jonah Featherstone began to follow her with his cold, detective eyes, young Cranch, turning his head in the same direction, seemed to insist on it that she should remark how he was squinting, as if he did it with design, like the gypsies when Barrow read the New Testament to them. This was rather too much for poor Mary. Sometimes it made her bilious, sometimes it upset her gravity. One day that she had an opportunity she could not resist describing the kitchen scene to Fred, who would not be hindered from immediately going to see it, affecting simply to pass through. But no sooner did he face the four eyes than he had to rush through the nearest door which happened to lead to the dairy, and there under the high roof and among the pans he gave way to laughter which made a hollow resonance perfectly audible in the kitchen. He fled by another doorway, but Mr. Jonah, who had not before seen Fred's white complexion, long legs, and pinched delicacy of face, prepared many sarcasms in which these points of appearance were wittily combined with the lowest moral attributes. "'Why, Tom, you don't wear such gentlemanly trousers. You haven't got half such fine long legs,' said Jonah to his nephew, winking at the same time to imply there was something more in these statements than their undeniableness. Tom looked at his legs, but left it uncertain whether he preferred his moral advantages to a more vicious length of limb and reprehensible gentility of trouser. In the large wainscoted parlour, too, there were constantly pairs of eyes on the watch, and own relatives eager to be sitters up. Many came, lunched, and departed, but Brother Solomon and the lady who had been Jane Featherstone for twenty-five years, before she was Mrs. Wall, found it good to be there every day for hours, without other calculable occupation than that of observing the cunning Mary Garth, who was so deep that she could be found out in nothing, and giving occasional dry, wrinkly indications of crying, as if capable of torrents in a wetter season, at the thought that they were not allowed to go into Mr. Featherstone's room, for the old man's dislike of his own family seemed to get stronger, as he got less able to amuse himself by saying biting things to them. Too languid to sting, he had the more venom refluent in his blood. Not fully believing the message sent through Mary Garth, they had presented themselves together within the door of the bedroom, both in black, Mrs. Wall having a white handkerchief partially unfolded in her hand, and both with faces in a sort of half-morning purple, while Mrs. Vincy, with her pink cheeks and pink ribbons flying, was actually administering a cordial to their own brother, and the light-complexioned Fred, his short hair, curling as might be expected in a gambler's, was lolling at his ease in a large chair. Old Featherstone no sooner caught sight of these funereal figures appearing in spite of his orders than rage came to strengthen him more successfully than the cordial. He was propped up on a bed rest and always had his gold-headed stick lying by him. He seized it now, and swept it backwards and forwards, in as large an area as he could, apparently to ban these ugly specters, crying in a hoarse sort of screech, "'Back! back, Mrs. Wall! back, Solomon!' "'Oh, brother, Peter!' Mrs. Wall began. But Solomon put his hand before her repressingly. He was a large-cheeked man, nearly seventy, with small furtive eyes and was not only of much blander temper, but thought himself much deeper than his brother Peter, indeed not likely to be deceived in any of his fellow-men, inasmuch as they could not well be more greedy and deceitful than he suspected them of being. Even the invisible powers, he thought, were likely to be soothed by a bland parenthesis here and there, coming from a man of property who might have been as impious as others. "'Brother Peter,' he said, in a wheedling, yet gravely official tone, "'it's nothing but right I should speak to you about the three crofts and the manganese. The Almighty knows what I've got on my mind.' "'Then he knows more than I want to know,' said Peter, laying down his stick with a show of truce which had a threat in it too, for he reversed the stick so as to make the gold-handle a club in case of closer fighting, and looked hard at Solomon's bald head. "'There's things you might repent of, brother, for want of speaking to me,' said Solomon, not advancing, however. "'I could sit up with you to-night, and Jane with me willingly, and you might take your own time to speak, or let me speak.' "'Yes, I shall take my own time.' you needn't offer me yours said peter but you can't take your own time to die in brother began mrs wall with her usual woolly tone and when you lie speechless you may be tired of having strangers about you and you may think of me and my children but here her voice broke under the touching thought which she was attributing to her speechless brother the mention of ourselves being naturally affecting. "'No, I shan't,' said old Featherstone, contradictiously. "'I shan't think of any of you. I've made my will, I tell you, I've made my will.' Here he turned his head towards Mrs. Vincy, and swallowed some more of his cordial. "'Some people would be ashamed to fill up a place belonging by rights to others,' said Mrs. Wall, turning her narrow eyes in the same direction. "'Oh, sister,' said Solomon, with ironical softness, "'you and me are not fine and handsome and clever enough. We must be humble and let smart people push themselves before us.' Fred's spirit could not bear this. Rising and looking at Mr. Featherstone, he said, "'Shall my mother and I leave the room, sir?' that you may be alone with your friends.' "'Sit down, I tell you,' said old Featherstone, snappishly. "'Stop where you are.' "'Good-bye, Solomon,' he added, trying to wield his stick again, but failing now that he had reversed the handle. "Goodbye, bye Mrs. Wall. Don't you come again.' "'I shall be downstairs, brother, whether or no,' said Solomon. "'I shall do my duty.' and it remains to be seen what the Almighty will allow. "'Yes, in property going out of families,' said Mrs. Wall, in continuation, "'and where there's steady young men to carry on. But I pity them who are not such, and I pity their mothers. Good-bye, Brother Peter.' "'Remember, I'm the eldest after you, brother, and prospered from the first just as you did,' "'and have got land already by the name of Featherstone,' said Solomon, relying much on that reflection, as one which might be suggested in the watches of the night. "'But I bid you good-bye for the present.' Their exit was hastened by their seeing old Mr. Featherstone pull his wig on each side and shut his eyes with his mouth-widening grimace, as if he were determined to be deaf and blind." Nonetheless, they came to stone court daily, and sat below at the post of duty, sometimes carrying on a slow dialogue in an undertone, in which the observation and response were so far apart that any one hearing them might have imagined himself listening to speaking automata, in some doubt whether the ingenious mechanism would really work or wind itself up for a long time in order to stick and be silent. Solomon and Jane would have been sorry to be quick. What that led to might be seen on the other side of the wall in the person of Brother Jonah. But their watch in the wainscoted parlour was sometimes varied by the presence of other guests from far or near. Now that Peter Featherstone was upstairs, his property could be discussed with all that local enlightenment to be found on the spot. Some rural and middlemarch neighbors expressed much agreement with the family, and sympathy with their interest against the Vincies, and feminine visitors were even moved to tears in conversation with Mrs. Wall, when they recalled the fact that they themselves had been disappointed in times past by codicils and marriages for spite on the part of ungrateful elderly gentlemen." who, it might have been supposed, had been spared for something better. Such conversation paused suddenly, like an organ when the bellows are let drop, if Mary Garth came into the room, and all eyes were turned on her as a possible legatee, or one who might get access to iron chests. But the younger men who were relatives or connections of the family were disposed to admire her in this problematic light, as a girl who showed much conduct, and who, among all the chances that were flying, might turn out to be at least a moderate prize. Hence she had her share of compliments and polite attentions. Especially from Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, a distinguished bachelor and auctioneer of those parts, much concerned in the sale of land and cattle, a public character, indeed, whose name was seen on widely distributed placards, and who might reasonably be sorry for those who did not know of him. He was a second cousin to Peter Featherstone, and had been treated by him with more amenity than any other relative, being useful in matters of business, and in that program of his funeral which the old man had himself dictated he had been named as a bearer. There was no odious cupidity in Mr. Borthrop Trumbull nothing more than a sincere sense of his own merit which he was aware in case of rivalry might tell against competitors so that if peter featherstone who so far as he trumbull was concerned had behaved like as a good soul as ever breathed should have done anything handsome by him all he could say was that he had never fished and fawned but had advised him to the best of his experience which now extended over twenty years from the time of his apprenticeship at fifteen, and was likely to yield a knowledge of no surreptitious kind. His admiration was far from being confined to himself, but was accustomed professionally as well as privately to delight in estimating things at a high rate. He was an amateur of superior phrases, and never used poor language without immediately correcting himself, which was fortunate, as he was rather loud and given to predominate, standing or walking about frequently, pulling down his waistcoat with the air of a man who is very much of his own opinion, trimming himself rapidly with his forefinger, and marking each new series in these movements by a busy play with his large seals. There was occasionally a little fierceness in his demeanour, but it was directed chiefly against false opinion, of which there is so much to correct in the world that a man of some reading and experience necessarily has his patience tried. He felt that the Featherstone family generally was of limited understanding, but being a man of the world and a public character, took everything as a matter of course, and even went to converse with Mr. Jonah and young Cranch in the kitchen, not doubting that he had impressed the latter greatly by his leading questions concerning the chalky flats. If anybody had observed that Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, being an auctioneer, was bound to know the nature of everything, he would have smiled and trimmed himself silently with the sense that he came pretty near that. On the whole, in an auctioneering way, he was an honorable man, not ashamed of his business and feeling that the celebrated Peel, now sir robert if introduced to him would not fail to recognize his importance i don't mind if i have a slice of that ham and a glass of that ale miss garth if you will allow me he said coming into the parlor at half-past eleven after having had the exceptional privilege of seeing old featherstone and standing with his back to the fire between mrs wall and solomon it's not necessary for you to go out. Let me ring the bell. Thank you, said Mary. I have an errand. Well, Mr. Trumbull, you're highly favoured, said Mrs. Wall. What, seen the old man? said the auctioneer, playing with his seals dispassionately. Ah, you see, he has relied on me considerably. Here he pressed his lips together, and frowned meditatively. "'Might anybody ask what their brother has been saying?' said Solomon, in a soft tone of humility, in which he had a sense of luxurious cunning, he being a rich man, and not in need of it. "'Oh, yes, anybody may ask,' said Mr. Trumbull, with loud and good-humoured, though cutting sarcasm. "'Anybody may interrogate. Any one may give their remarks an interrogative turn,' he continued." his sonorousness rising with his style. This is constantly done by good speakers, even when they anticipate no answer. It is what we call a figure of speech, speech at a high figure, as one may say. The eloquent auctioneer smiled at his own ingenuity. "'I shouldn't be sorry to hear he'd remembered you, Mr. Trumbull,' said Solomon. "'I never was against the deserving.' It's the undeserving I'm against. Ah, there it is, you see, there it is, said Mr. Trumbull significantly. It can't be denied that undeserving people have been legatees, and even residuary legatees. It is so with testamentary dispositions. Again he pursed up his lips and frowned a little. Do you mean to say for certain, Mr. Trumbull, that my brother has left his land away from our family said mrs wall on whom as an unhopeful woman those long words had a depressing effect a man might as well turn his land into charity land at once as to leave it to some people observed solomon his sister's question having drawn no answer what blue coat land asked mrs wall again oh mr trumbull YOU NEVER CAN MEAN TO SAY THAT. IT WOULD BE FLYING IN THE FACE OF THE ALMIGHTY THAT'S PROSPERED HIM. WHILE Mrs. Wall was speaking, Mr. Borthrop Trumbull walked away from the fireplace towards the window, patrolling with his forefinger round the inside of his stock, then along his whiskers and the curves of his hair. He now walked to Miss Garth's work-table, opened a book which lay there and read the title aloud, with pompous emphasis, as if he were offering it for sale. "'Anne of Geierstein,' pronounced Gierstein, "'or The Maiden of the Mist, by the author of Waverley.' Then, turning the page, he began sonorously. "'The course of four centuries has well-nigh elapsed, since the series of events which are related in the following chapters took place on the continent. He pronounced the last truly admirable word with the accent on the last syllable, not as unaware of vulgar usage, but feeling that this novel delivery enhanced the sonorous beauty which his reading had given to the whole. And now the servant came in with a tray, so that the moments for answering Mrs. Wall's question had gone by safely, while she and Solomon— watching Mr. Trumbull's movements, were thinking that high learning interfered sadly with serious affairs. Mr. Borthrop Trumbull really knew nothing about old Featherstone's will, but he could hardly have been brought to declare any ignorance unless he had been arrested for misprision of treason. "'I shall take a mere mouthful of ham and a glass of ale,' he said reassuringly. "'As a man with public business,' I take a snack when I can. I will back this ham, he added, after swallowing some morsels with alarming haste, against any ham in the Three Kingdoms. In my opinion it is better than the hams at Freshett Hall, and I think I am a tolerable judge. Some don't like so much sugar in their hams, said Mrs. Wall, but my poor brother would always have sugar if any person demands better he is at liberty to do so but god bless me what an aroma i should be glad to buy in that quality i know there is some gratification to a gentleman here mr trumbull's voice conveyed an emotional remonstrance in having this kind of ham set on his table he pushed aside his plate poured out his glass of ale and drew his chair a little forward, profiting by the occasion to look at the inner side of his legs, which he stroked approvingly, Mr. Trumbull having all those less frivolous airs and gestures which distinguished the predominant races of the North. "'You have an interesting work there, I see, Miss Garth,' he observed, when Mary re-entered. "'It is by the author of Waverley—that is, Sir Walter Scott.' I have bought one of his works myself, a very nice thing, a very superior publication, entitled Ivanhoe. You will not get any writer to beat him in a hurry, I think. He will not, in my opinion, be speedily surpassed. I have just been reading a portion at the commencement of Anne of Jierstein. It commences well. Things never began with Mr. Borthrop Trumbull. They always commenced, both in private life and on his handbills. You are a reader, I see. Do you subscribe to our Middlemarch library? No, said Mary. Mr. Fred Vincy brought this book. I am a great bookman myself, returned Mr. Trumbull. I have no less than two hundred volumes in calf, and I flatter myself they are well selected also pictures by Murillo, Rubens, Teniers, Titian, Van Dyck, and others. I shall be happy to lend you any work you like to mention, Miss Garth. I am much obliged, said Mary, hastening away again, but I have little time for reading. I should say my brother has done something for her and his will, said Mr. Solomon, in a very low undertone, when she had shut the door behind her, pointing with his head towards the absent Mary. "'His first wife was a poor match for him, though,' said Mrs. Wall. "'She brought him nothing, and this young woman is only her niece, and very proud, and my brother has always paid her wage.' "'A sensible girl, though, in my opinion,' said Mr. Trumbull, finishing his ale and starting up with an emphatic adjustment of his waistcoat. I have observed her when she has been mixing medicine in drops. She minds what she is doing, sir. That is a great point in a woman, and a great point for our friend upstairs, poor dear old soul. A man whose life is of any value should think of his wife as a nurse. That is what I should do if I married, and I believe I have lived single long enough not to make a mistake in that line.' Some men must marry to elevate themselves a little, but when I am in need of that, I hope some one will tell me so. I hope some individual will apprise me of the fact. I wish you good morning, Mrs. Wall. Good morning, Mr. Solomon. I trust we shall meet under less melancholy auspices. When Mr. Trumbull had departed with a fine bow, Solomon, leaning forward, observed to his sister, You may depend, Jane. My brother has left that girl a lumping sum. Anybody would think so, from the way Mr. Trumbull talks, said Jane. Then, after a pause, he talks as if my daughters wasn't to be trusted to give drops. Auctioneers talk wild, said Solomon. Not but what Trumbull has made money. End of chapter 32 Chapter Thirty Three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LIMBERVOX recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Close up his eyes and draw the curtain close, and let us all to meditation. Henry the Sixth, Part Two. That night after twelve o'clock, Mary Garth relieved the watch in Mr. Featherstone's room, and sat there alone through the small hours. She often chose this task, in which she found some pleasure notwithstanding the old man's testiness whenever he demanded her attentions. There were intervals in which she could sit perfectly still, enjoying the outer stillness and the subdued light. The red fire, with its gently audible movement, seemed like a solemn existence calmly independent of the petty passions, the imbecile desires, the straining after worthless uncertainties, which were daily moving her contempt. Mary was fond of her own thoughts, and could amuse herself well sitting in twilight with her hands in her lap, for, having early had strong reason to believe that things were not likely to be arranged for her peculiar satisfaction, she wasted no time in astonishment and annoyance at that fact. And she had already come to take life very much as a comedy in which she had a proud, nay, a generous resolution not to act the mean or treacherous part. Mary might have become cynical if she had not had parents whom she honoured, and a well of affectionate gratitude within her, which was all the fuller because she had learned to make no unreasonable claims. She sat to-night revolving, as she was wont, the scenes of the day, her lips often curling with amusement at the oddities to which her fancy added fresh drollery. People were so ridiculous with their illusions, carrying their fools' caps unawares, thinking their own lies opaque while everybody else's were transparent, making themselves exceptions to everything, as if when all the world looked yellow under a lamp they alone were rosy. Yet there were some illusions under Mary's eyes which were not quite comic to her. She was secretly convinced though she had no other grounds than her close observation of old Featherstone's nature, that in spite of his fondness for having the Vincys about him, they were as likely to be disappointed as any of the relations whom he kept at a distance. She had a good deal of disdain for Mrs. Vincy's evident alarm, lest she and Fred should be alone together, but it did not hinder her from thinking anxiously of the way in which Fred would be affected if it should turn out that his uncle had left him as poor as ever. She could make a butt of Fred when he was present, but she did not enjoy his follies when he was absent. Yet she liked her thoughts. A vigorous young mind, not overbalanced by passion, finds a good in making acquaintance with life, and watches its own powers with interest. Mary had plenty of merriment within. Her thought was not veined by any solemnity or pathos about the old man on the bed. Such sentiments are easier to affect than to feel about an aged creature whose life is not visibly anything but a remnant of vices. She had always seen the most disagreeable side of Mr. Featherstone. He was not proud of her, and she was only useful to him. To be anxious about a soul that is always snapping at you must be left to the saints of the earth, and Mary was not one of them. She had never returned him a harsh word, and had waited on him faithfully, that was her utmost. Old Featherstone himself was not in the least anxious about his soul, and had declined to see Mr. Tucker on the subject. To night he had not snapped, and for the first hour or two he lay remarkably still, until at last. Mary heard him rattling his bunch of keys against the tin-box, which he always kept in the bed beside him. About three o'clock, he said, with remarkable distinctness, Missy, come here. Mary obeyed, and found that he had already drawn the tin-box from under the clothes, though he usually asked to have this done for him, and he had selected the key. Now he unlocked the box, and, drawing from it another key, looked straight at her with eyes that seemed to have recovered all their sharpness, and said, "'How many of them are in the house?' "'You mean of your own relations, sir?' said Mary, well used to the old man's way of speech. He nodded slightly, and she went on. "'Mr. Jonah Featherstone and young Cranch are sleeping here.' "'Oh, aye, they stick, do they? And the rest? They come every day, I'll warrant.' "'Solomon and Jane and all the young'uns? "'They come peeping and counting and casting up? "'Not all of them every day. "'Mr. Solomon and Mrs. Wall are here every day, "'and the others come often.' The old man listened with a grimace while she spoke, and then said, relaxing his face, "'The more fools they!' "'You hearken, Missy. "'It's three o'clock in the morning, "'and I've got all my faculties as well as ever I had in my life.' I know all my property, and where the money's put out, and everything, and I've made everything ready to change my mind and do as I like at the last. Do you hear, Missy? I've got my faculties. Well, sir, said Mary quietly. He now lowered his tone with an air of deeper cunning. I've made two wills, and I'm going to burn one. Now, you do as I tell you. This is the key of my iron chest in the closet there. You push well at the side of the brass plate at the top till it goes like a bolt. Then you can put the key in the front lock and turn it. See and do that, and take out the topmost paper, last will and testament, big printed. No, sir, said Mary in a firm voice, I cannot do that. Not do it? I tell you! "'You must,' said the old man, his voice beginning to shake under the shock of this resistance. "'I cannot touch your iron chest or your will. I must refuse to do anything that might lay me open to suspicion.' "'I tell you, I'm in my right mind. Sha'n't I do as I like at the last? I made two wills on purpose. Take the key, I say.' "'No, sir, I will not,' said Mary.' more resolutely still. Her repulsion was getting stronger. "'I tell you, there's no time to lose.' "'I cannot help that, sir. I will not let the close of your life soil the beginning of mine. I will not touch your iron chest or your will.' She moved to a little distance from the bedside. The old man paused with a blank stare for a little while, holding the one key erect on the ring. Then, with an agitated jerk, he began to work with his bony left hand at emptying the tin box before him. "'Missy,' he began to say hurriedly, "'look here. Take the money, the notes, and gold. Look here. Take it. You shall have it all. Do as I tell you.' He made an effort to stretch out the key towards her as far as possible, and Mary again retreated. I will not touch your key or your money, sir. Pray don't ask me to do it again. If you do, I must go and call your brother." He let his hand fall, and for the first time in her life Mary saw old Peter Featherstone begin to cry childishly. She said, in as gentle a tone as she could command, "'Pray put up your money, sir,' and then went away to her seat by the fire, hoping this would help to convince him that it was useless to say more. Presently he rallied and said eagerly, "'Look here, then. Call the young chap. Call Fred Vincy." Mary's heart began to beat more quickly. Various ideas rushed through her mind as to what the burning of a second will might imply. She had to make a difficult decision in a hurry. "'I will call him,' "'if you will let me call Mr. Jonah and others with him. "'Nobody else, I say. The young chap. I shall do as I like. "'Wait till broad daylight, sir, when every one is stirring. "'Or let me call Simmons now to go and fetch the lawyer. "'He can be here in less than two hours. "'Lawyer! What do I want with the lawyer? "'Nobody shall know. I say, nobody shall know. "'I shall do as I like.' "'Let me call some one else, sir,' said Mary persuasively. She did not like her position, alone with the old man, who seemed to show a strange flaring of nervous energy which enabled him to speak again and again without falling into his usual cough. Yet she desired not to push unnecessarily the contradiction which agitated him. "'Let me, pray, call some one else.' "'You let me alone, I say. Look here, missy.' Take the money. You'll never have the chance again. It's pretty nigh two hundred. There's more in the box, and nobody knows how much there was. Take it and do as I tell you. Mary, standing by the fire, saw its red light falling on the old man, propped up on his pillows and bed-rest, with his bony hand holding out the key and the money lying on the quilt before him. She never forgot that vision of a man, wanting to do as he liked at the last. But the way in which he had put the offer of the money urged her to speak with harder resolution than ever. "'It is of no use, sir. I will not do it. Put up your money. I will not touch your money. I will do anything else I can to comfort you, but I will not touch your keys or your money.' anything else anything else said old featherstone with hoarse rage which as if in a nightmare tried to be loud and yet was only just audible i want nothing else you come here you come here mary approached him cautiously knowing him too well she saw him dropping his keys and trying to grasp his stick while he looked at her like an aged hyena, the muscles of his face getting distorted with the effort of his hand. She paused at a safe distance. "'Let me give you some cordial,' she said quietly, "'and try to compose yourself. You will perhaps go to sleep, and to-morrow, by daylight, you can do as you like.' He lifted the stick, in spite of her being beyond his reach, and threw it with a hard effort which was but impotence." It fell, slipping over the foot of the bed. Mary let it lie, and retreated to her chair by the fire. By and by she would go to him with the cordial. Fatigue would make him passive. It was getting towards the chillest moment of the morning, the fire had got low, and she could see through the chink between the mooring window-curtains the light whitened by the blind. Having put some wood on the fire and thrown a shawl over her, she sat down, hoping that Mr. Featherstone might now fall asleep. If she went near him, the irritation might be kept up. He said nothing after throwing the stick, but she had seen him taking his keys again and laying his right hand on the money. He did not put it up, however, and she thought that he was dropping off to sleep. But Mary herself began to be more agitated by the remembrance of what she had gone through than she had been by the reality questioning those acts of hers which had come imperatively and excluded all question in the critical moment. Presently the dry wood sent out a flame which illuminated every crevice, and Mary saw that the old man was lying quietly with his head turned a little on one side. She went towards him with inaudible steps, and thought that his face looked strangely motionless. But the next moment— The movement of the flame communicating itself to all objects made her uncertain. The violent beating of her heart rendered her perceptions so doubtful that even when she touched him and listened for his breathing she could not trust her conclusions. She went to the window and gently propped aside the curtain and blind so that the still light of the sky fell on the bed. The next moment she ran to the bell and rang it energetically. In a very little while there was no longer any doubt that Peter Featherstone was dead, with his right hand clasping the keys and his left hand lying on the heap of notes and gold. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 of Middlemarch by George Eliot This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayette First, gentlemen. Such men as this are feathers, chips, and straws. Second, gentlemen. But levity is causal, too, and makes the sum of weight, for power finds its place in lack of power. Advance is session, and the driven ship may run aground because the helmsman's thought lacked force to balance opposites. It was on a morning of May that Peter Featherstone was buried. In the prosaic neighborhood of Middlemarch, May was not always warm and sunny, and on this particular morning a chill wind was blowing the blossoms from the surrounding gardens on to the green mounds of Lowick churchyard. Swiftly moving clouds only now and then allowed a gleam to light up any object, whether ugly or beautiful, that happened to stand within its golden shower. In the churchyard the objects were remarkably various, for there was a little country crowd waiting to see the funeral. The news had spread that it was going to be a big burying. The old gentleman had left written directions about everything, and meant to have a funeral beyond his betters. This was true, for old Featherstone had not been a harpagon whose passions had been all devoured by the ever-lean and ever-hungry passion of saving, and who would drive a bargain with his undertaker beforehand. He loved money but he also loved to spend it in gratifying his peculiar tastes, and perhaps he loved it best of all as a means of making others feel his power more or less uncomfortably. If any one will here contend that there must have been traits of goodness in old Featherstone, I will not presume to deny this, but I must observe that goodness is of a modest nature, easily discouraged, and, when much privacy, elbowed in early life by unabashed vices, is apt to retire into extreme privacy so that it is more easily believed in by those who construct a selfish old gentleman theoretically than by those who form the narrower judgments based on his personal acquaintance in any case he had been bent on having a handsome funeral and on having persons bid to it who would rather have stayed at home he had even desired that female relatives should follow him to the grave and poor sister Martha had taken a difficult journey for this purpose from the Chalky Flats. She and Jane would have been altogether cheered, in a tearful manner, by this sign that a brother who disliked seeing them while he was living had been prospectively fond of their presence when he should have become a testator, if the sign had not been made equivocal by being extended to Mrs. Vincy, whose expense in handsome crape seemed to imply the most presumptuous hopes, aggravated by a bloom of complexion which told pretty plainly that she was not a blood relation, but of that generally objectionable class called wife's kin. We are, all of us, imaginative in some form or other, for images are the brood of desire, and poor old Featherstone, who laughed much at the way in others cajoled themselves, did not escape the fellowship of illusion." In writing the programme for his burial he certainly did not make clear to himself that his pleasure in the little drama of which it formed a part was confined to anticipation. In chuckling over the vexations he could inflict by the rigid clutch of his dead hand, he inevitably mingled his consciousness with that livid, stagnant presence, and so far as he was preoccupied with a future life it was with one of gratification inside his coffin. Thus Old Featherstone was imaginative, after his fashion. However, the three mourning coaches were filled according to the written orders of the deceased. There were pallbearers on horseback, with the richest scarfs and hat-bands, and even the underbearers had trappings of woe which were of a good well-priced quality. The black procession, when dismounted, looked the larger for the smallness of the churchyard. The heavy human faces, and the black draperies, shivering in the wind, seemed to tell of a world strangely incongruous with the lightly dropping blossoms and the gleams of sunshine on the daisies. The clergyman who met the procession was Mr. Cadwallader, also, according to the request of Peter Featherstone, prompted, as usual, by peculiar reasons. Having a contempt for curates, whom he always called understrappers, he was resolved to be buried by a beneficed clergyman, Mr. Casaubon was out of the question, not merely because he declined duty of this sort, but because Featherstone had an especial dislike to him as the rector of his own parish, who had a lien on the land in the shape of a tithe, also as the deliverer of morning sermons which the old man, being in his pew and not at all sleepy, had been obliged to sit through with an inward snarl. He had an objection to a parson stuck up above his head preaching to him. But his relations with Mr. Cadwallader had been of a different kind. The trout stream which ran through Mr. Casaubon's land took its course through Featherstone's also, so that Mr. Cadwallader was a parson who had had to ask a favor instead of preaching. Moreover, he was one of the high gentry living four miles away from Lowick, and was thus exalted to an equal sky with the sheriff of the county and other dignities vaguely regarded as necessary to the system of things. There would be a satisfaction in being buried by Mr. Cadwallader, whose very name offered a fine opportunity for pronouncing wrongly if you liked. This distinction conferred on the rector of Tipton and Freshet was the reason why Mrs. Cadwallader made one of the group that watched old Featherstone's funeral from an upper window of the manor. She was not fond of visiting that house, but she liked, as she said, to see collections of strange animals such as there would be at this funeral, and she had persuaded Sir James and the young lady Chettam to drive the rector and herself to Lowick, in order that the visit might be altogether pleasant. "'I will go anywhere with you, Mrs. Cadwallader,' Celia had said, "'but I don't like funerals.' "'Oh, my dear, when you have a clergyman in your family you must accommodate your tastes. I did that very early.' "'When I married Humphrey I made up my mind to like sermons, and I set out by liking the end very much. That soon spread to the middle and the beginning, because I couldn't have the end without them.' "'No, to be sure not,' said the dowager lady Chettam, with stately emphasis. The upper window from which the funeral could well be seen was in the room occupied by Mr. Casaubon when he had been forbidden to work but he had resumed nearly his habitual style of life now in spite of warnings and prescriptions, and after politely welcoming Mrs. cadwallader had slipped again into the library to chew a cud of erudite mistake about Cush and Mizraim. But for her visitors Dorothea, too, might have been shut up in the library, and would not have witnessed this scene of old Featherstone's funeral, which, aloof as it seemed to be from the tenor of her life, always afterwards came back to her at the touch of certain sensitive points in memory, just as the vision of St. Peter's at Rome was inwoven with moods of despondency. Scenes which make vital changes in our neighbor's lot are but the background of our own. Yet, like a particular aspect of the fields and trees, they become associated for us with the epochs of our own history, and make a part of that unity which lies in the selection of our keenest consciousness. The dreamlike association of something alien and ill-understood with the deepest secrets of her experience seemed to mirror that sense of loneliness which was due to the very ardor of Dorothea's nature. The country gentry of old time lived in a rarefied social air. Dotted apart on their stations up in the mountain, they looked down with imperfect discrimination, on the belts of thicker life below. And Dorothea was not at ease in the perspective and chilliness of that height. "'I shall not look any more,' said Celia, after the train had entered the church, placing herself a little behind her husband's elbow, so that she could slyly touch his coat with her cheek. I dare say Dodo likes it. She is fond of melancholy things and ugly people.' "'I am fond of knowing something about the people I live among,' said Dorothea, who had been watching everything with the interest of a monk on his holiday tour. "'It seems to me we know nothing of our neighbours unless they are cottagers. One is constantly wondering what sort of lives other people lead, and how they take things. I am quite obliged to Mrs. Cadwallader for coming and calling me out of the library.' "'Quite right to feel obliged to me,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. Your rich Lowick farmers are as curious as any buffaloes or bisons, and I dare say you don't see half of them at church. They are quite different from your uncle's tenants or Sir James monsters, farmers without landlords. One can't tell how to class them. Most of these followers are not Lowick people, said Sir James. I suppose they are legatees from a distance or from Middlemarch. Lovegood tells me the old fellow has left a good deal of money as well as land. "'Think of that now! When so many younger sons can't dine at their own expense,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'Ah!' turning round at the sound of the opening door, "'here is Mr. Brooke. I felt that we were incomplete here, and here is the explanation. You are come to see this odd funeral, of course?' "'No. I came to look after Casaubon to see how he goes on, you know. And to bring a little news. A little news, my dear, said Mr. Brooke, nodding at Dorothea as she came towards him. I looked into the library, and I saw Casaubon over his books. I told him it wouldn't do, I said. This will never do, you know. Think of your wife, Casaubon, And he promised me to come up. I didn't tell him my news. I said he must come up ah now they are coming out of the church mrs cadwallader exclaimed dear me what a wonderfully mixed set mr lydgate is doctor i suppose but that is really a good-looking woman and the fair young man must be her son who are they sir james do you know i see vincy the mayor of middlemarch they are probably his wife and son said sir james looking interrogatively at mr brooke who nodded and said "'Yes, a very decent family. A very good fellow is Vincy, a credit to the manufacturing interest. You have seen him at my house, you know.' "'Ah, yes, one of your secret committee,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, provokingly. "'A coursing fellow, though,' said Sir James, with a fox-hunter's disgust. "'And one of those people who suck the life out of the wretched hand-loom weavers in Tipton and Freshett.' "'That is how his family looks so fair and sleek,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'Those dark, purple-faced people are an excellent foil. "'Dear me, they are like a set of jugs. "'Do look at Humphrey. "'One might fancy him an ugly archangel towering above them in his white surplice.' "'It's a solemn thing, though, a funeral,' said Mr. Brooke. "'If you take it in that light, you know.' "'But I am not taking it in that light.' "'I can't wear my solemnity too often, else it will go to rags. "'It was time the old man died, and none of these people are sorry.' "'How piteous!' said Dorothea. "'This funeral seems to me the most dismal thing I ever saw. "'It is a blot on the morning. "'I cannot bear to think that any one should die, and leave no love behind.' She was going to say more, but she saw her husband enter, and seat himself a little in the background. The difference his presence made to her was not always a happy one. She felt that he often inwardly objected to her speech. "'Positively,' exclaimed Mrs. Cadwallader, "'there is a new face come out from behind that broad man, queerer than any of them. A little round head with bulging eyes. A sort of frog-face. Do look! He must be of another blood, I think.' "'Let me see,' said Celia, with awakened curiosity standing behind Mrs. Cadwallader and leaning forward over her head. Oh, what an odd face! Then, with a quick change to another sort of surprised expression, she added, Why, Dodo, you never told me that Mr. Ladislaw was come again. Dorothea felt a shock of alarm. Every one noticed her sudden paleness as she looked up immediately at her uncle, while Mr. Casaubon looked at her. He came with me, you know. "'He is my guest. Puts up with me at the Grange,' said Mr. Brooke, in his easiest tone, nodding at Dorothea, as if the announcement were just what she might have expected. "'And we have brought the picture at the top of the carriage. I knew you would be pleased with the surprise, Casaubon. There you are to the very life, as Aquinas, you know. Quite the right sort of thing. And you will hear young Ladislaw talk about it. He talks uncommonly well.' points out this that and the other nose art and everything of that kind companionable you know is up with you in any track what i've been wanting a long while mr casaubon bowed with cold politeness mastering his irritation but only so far as to be silent he remembered will's letter quite as well as dorothea did he had noticed that it was not among the letters which had been reserved for him on his recovery and secretly concluding that Dorothea had sent word to Will not to come to Lowick, he had shrunk with proud sensitiveness from ever recurring to the subject. He now inferred that she had asked her uncle to invite Will to the Grange, and she felt it impossible at that moment to enter into any explanation. Mrs. Cadwallader's eyes, diverted from the churchyard, saw a good deal of dumb show which was not so intelligible to her as she could have desired, and could not repress the question, Who is Mr. Ladislaw? A young relative of Mr. Casaubon's said Sir James, promptly. His good nature often made him quick and clear-seeing in personal matters, and he had divined from Dorothea's glance at her husband that there was some alarm in her mind. A very nice young fellow. Casaubon has done everything for him, explained Mr. Brook. "'He repays your expense in him, Casaubon. he went on, nodding encouragingly. "'I hope he will stay with me a long while, and we shall make something of my documents. I have plenty of ideas and facts, you know, and I can see he is just the man to put them into shape, remembers what the right quotations are, omne tulit punctum, and that sort of thing, gives subjects a kind of turn. "'I invited him some time ago when you were ill, Cazabon.' "'Dorothea said you couldn't have anybody in the house, you know, and she asked me to write.' Poor Dorothea felt that every word of her uncle's was about as pleasant as a grain of sand in the eye to Mr. Casaubon. It would be altogether unfitting now to explain that she had not wished her uncle to invite Will Ladislaw. She could not in the least make clear to herself the reasons for her husband's dislike to his presence— a dislike painfully impressed on her by the scene in the library, but she felt the unbecomingness of saying anything that might convey a notion of it to others. Mr. Casaubon indeed, had not thoroughly represented those mixed reasons to himself, irritated feeling with him, as with all of us, seeking rather for justification than for self-knowledge. But he wished to repress outward signs, and only Dorothea could discern the changes in her husband's face before he observed with more of dignified bending and sing-song than usual. "'You are exceedingly hospitable, my dear sir, and I owe you acknowledgments for exercising your hospitality towards a relative of mine.' The funeral was ended now, and the churchyard was being cleared. "'Now you can see him, Mrs. Cadwallader,' said Celia. He is just like a miniature of Mr. Casaubon's aunt that hangs in Dorothea's boudoir. Quite nice-looking. "'A very pretty sprig,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, dryly. "'What is your nephew to be, Mr. Casaubon? "'Pardon me. He is not my nephew. He is my cousin.' "'Well, you know,' interposed Mr. Brooke, "'he is trying his wings. He is just the sort of young fellow to rise. I should be glad to give him an opportunity.' He would make a good secretary now, like Hobbes, Milton, Swift, that sort of man. "'I understand,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'One who can write speeches.' "'I'll fetch him in now, eh, Casaubon?" said Mr. Brooke. "'He wouldn't come in till I had announced him, you know. And we'll go down and look at the picture. There you are to the life, a deep, subtle sort of thinker, with his forefinger on the page, while St. Bonaventure, or somebody else, rather fat and florid, is looking up at the Trinity. Everything is symbolical, you know, the higher style of art. I like that up to a certain point, but not too far. It's rather straining to keep up with, you know. But you are at home in that, and your painter's flesh is good. Solidity, transparency, everything of that sort. I went into that a great deal at one time. However, I'll go and fetch Ladislaw. Chapter Thirty Four. Chapter Thirty Five of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espiault. Non, je ne comprends pas de plus charmant plaisir que de voir déroutier une troupe afflige, le maintien interdit et la mine allongée. Lire un long testament au pal étant l'urlée sans bonsoir avec un pied de nez pour voir au naturel le tristesse profonde je reviendrai je crois exprès de l'autre monde Régnade, le legataire universel when the animals entered the ark in pairs one may imagine that allied species made much private remark on each other and were tempted to think that so many forms feeding on the same store of fodder were eminently superfluous as tending to diminish the rations i fear the part played by the vultures on that occasion would be too painful for art to represent those birds being disadvantageously naked about the gullet and apparently without rites and ceremonies the same sort of temptation befell the christian carnivora who formed Peter Featherstone's funeral procession, most of them having their minds bent on a limited store which each would have liked to get the most of. The long-recognized blood relations and connections by marriage made already a goodly number, which, multiplied by possibilities, presented a fine range for jealous conjecture and pathetic hopefulness jealousy of the Vinces had created a fellowship and hostility among all persons of the Featherstone Blood, so that in the absence of any decided indication that one of themselves was to have more than the rest, the dread lest that long-legged Fred Vinci should have the land was necessarily dominant, though it left abundant feeling and leisure for vaguer jealousies, such as were entertained towards Mary Garth solomon found time to reflect that jonah was undeserving and jonah to abuse solomon as greedy jane the elder sister held that martha's children ought not to expect so much as the young walls and martha more lax on the subject of primogeniture was sorry to think that jane was so having these nearest of kin were naturally impressed with the unreasonableness of expectations in cousins and second cousins, and used their arithmetic in reckoning the large sums that small legacies might mount to, if there were too many of them. Two cousins were present to hear the will, and a second cousin besides Mr. Trumbull. This second cousin was a middlemarch mercer of polite manners and superfluous aspirates. The two cousins were elderly men from Brassing, one of them conscious of claims on the score of inconvenient expense sustained by him in presence of oysters and other eatables to his rich cousin Peter, the other entirely saturnine, leaning his hands and chin on a stick, and conscious of claims based on no narrow performance, but on merit generally, both blameless citizens of Brassing, who wished that Jonah Featherstone did not live there. The wit of a family is usually best received among strangers. "'Why, Trumbull himself is pretty sure of five hundred. That you may depend. I shouldn't wonder if my brother promised him,' said Solomon, musing aloud with his sisters the evening before the funeral. "'Dear, dear,' said poor Sister Martha, whose imagination of hundreds had been habitually narrowed to the amount of her unpaid rent but in the morning all the ordinary currents of conjecture were disturbed by the presence of a strange mourner who had plashed among them as if from the moon this was the stranger described by mrs cadwallader as frog-faced a man perhaps about two or three and thirty whose prominent eyes thin-lipped downward curved mouth and hair sleekly brushed away from a forehead that sank suddenly above the ridge of the eyebrows certainly gave his face a batrachian unchangeableness of expression here clearly was a new legatee else why was he bidden as a mourner here were new possibilities raising a new uncertainty which almost checked remark in the mourning coaches we are all humiliated by the sudden discovery of a fact which has existed very comfortably and perhaps been staring at us in private while we have been making up our world entirely without it. No one had seen this questionable stranger before except Mary Garth, and she knew nothing more of him than that he had twice been to Stone Court when Mr. Featherstone was downstairs, and had sat alone with him for several hours. She had found an opportunity of mentioning this to her father, and perhaps Caleb's were the only eyes, except the lawyer's, which examined the stranger with more of inquiry than of disgust or suspicion. Caleb Garth, having little expectation and less cupidity, was interested in the verification of his own guesses, and the calmness with which he half-smilingly rubbed his chin and shot intelligent glances much as if he were valuing a tree, made a fine contrast with the alarm or scorn visible in other faces when the unknown mourner, whose name was understood to be Rigg, entered the wainscoted parlor and took his seat near the door to make part of the audience when the will should be read. Just then Mr. Solomon and Mr. Jonah were gone upstairs with the lawyer to search for the will, and Mrs. Wall, seeing two vacant seats between herself and Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, had the spirit to move next to that great authority, who was handling his watch-seals, and trimming his outlines with a determination not to show anything so compromising to a man of ability as wonder or surprise i suppose you know everything about what my poor brother's done mr trumbull said mrs wall in the lowest of her woolly tones while she turned her crape shadowed bonnet towards mr trumbull's ear my good lady whatever was told me was told in confidence said the auctioneer putting his hand up to screen that secret. "'Them who've made sure of their good luck may be disappointed yet,' Mrs. Wall continued, finding some relief in this communication. "'Hopes are often delusive,' said Mr. Trumbull, still in confidence. "'Ah,' said Mrs. Wall, looking across at the Vinces, then moving back to the side of her sister Martha. It's wonderful how close poor Peter was, she said in the same undertones. We none of us know what he might have had on his mind. I only hope and trust he wasn't a worse liver than we think of, Martha. Poor Mrs. Cranch was bulky, and breathing asthmatically, had the additional motive for making her remarks unexceptional and giving them a general bearing, that even her whispers were loud and liable to sudden bursts like those of a deranged barrel-organ i never was covetous jane she replied but i have six children and have buried three and i didn't marry into money the eldest that sits there is but nineteen and so i leave you to guess and stock always short and land most awkward but if ever i've begged and prayed it's been to god above though where there's one brother and bachelor and the other childless after twice marrying. Anybody might think! Meanwhile Mr. Vincy had glanced at the passive face of Mr. Rigg, and taken out his snuff-box and tapped it, but had put it again unopened as an indulgence which, however clarifying to the judgment, was unsuited to the occasion. I shouldn't wonder if Featherstone had better feelings than any one of us gave him credit for, he observed in the ear of his wife. This funeral shows a thought about everybody. It looks well when a man wants to be followed by his friends, and if they are humble, not to be ashamed of them. I should be all the better pleased if he'd left lots of small legacies. They may be uncommonly useful to fellows in a small way. Everything is as handsome as could be, crepe and silk and everything, said Mrs. Vincy, contentedly but I am sorry to say that Fred was under some difficulty in repressing a laugh which would have been more unsuitable than his father's snuff-box. Fred had overheard Mr. Jonat suggesting something about a love-child, and with this thought in his mind the stranger's face, which happened to be opposite him, affected him too ludicrously. Mary Garth, discerning his distress in the twitchings of his mouth and his recourse to a cough, came cleverly to his rescue by asking him to change seats with her, so that he got into a shadowy corner. Fred was feeling as good-naturedly as possible towards everybody, including Rig, and having some relenting towards all these people who were less lucky than he was aware of himself being, he would not for the world have behaved amiss. Still, it was particularly easy to laugh. But the entrance of the lawyer and the two brothers drew every one's attention. The lawyer was Mr. Standish, and he had come to Stone Court this morning believing that he knew thoroughly well who would be pleased and who disappointed before the day was over. The will he expected to read was the last of the three which he had drawn up for Mr. Featherstone. Mr. Standish was not a man who varied his manners. He behaved with the same deep voiced, off hand civility to everybody as if he saw no difference in them and talked chiefly of the hay crop which would be very fine by god of the last bulletins concerning the king and the duke of clarence who was a sailor every inch of him and just the man to rule over an island like britain old featherstone had often reflected as he sat looking at the fire that standish would be surprised some day it is true that if he had done as he liked at the last and burnt up the will drawn up by another lawyer, he would not have secured that minor end. Still, he had had his pleasure in ruminating on it. And certainly Mr. Standish was surprised, but not at all sorry. On the contrary, he rather enjoyed the zest of a little curiosity in his own mind, which the discovery of a second will added to the prospective amazement on the part of the Featherstone family. As to the sentiments of Solomon and Jonah, they were held in utter suspense. It seemed to them that the old will would have a certain validity, and that there might be such an interlacement of poor Peter's former and latter intentions as to create endless lawing before anybody came by their own, an inconvenience which would have at least the advantage of going all round. Hence the brothers showed a thoroughly neutral gravity as they re-entered with Mr. Standish. But Solomon took out his white handkerchief again with a sense that in any case there would be affecting passages, and crying at funerals, however dry, was customarily served up in lawn. Perhaps the person who felt the most throbbing excitement at this moment was Mary Garth, in the consciousness that it was she who had virtually determined the production of this second will, which might have momentous effects on the lot of some persons present no soul except herself knew what had passed on that final night the will i hold in my hand said mr standish who seated at the table in the middle of the room took his time about everything including the coughs with which he showed a disposition to clear his voice was drawn up by myself and executed by our deceased friend on the ninth of august eighteen twenty five but I find that there is a subsequent instrument hitherto unknown to me, bearing date the 20th of July, 1826, hardly a year later than the previous one. And there is farther, I see. Mr. Standish was cautiously travelling over the document with his spectacles. A codicil to this latter will, bearing date March first, 1828. "'Dear, dear,' said Sister Martha, not meaning to be audible, but driven to some articulation under this pressure of dates. "'I shall begin by reading the earlier will,' continued Mr. Standish, since such, as appears by his not having destroyed the document, was the intention of the deceased. The preamble was felt to be rather long, and several besides Solomon shook their heads pathetically, looking on the ground. All eyes avoided meeting other eyes, and were chiefly fixed either on the spots on the tablecloth or on Mr. Standish's bald head, excepting Mary Garth's. When all the rest were trying to look nowhere in particular, it was safe for her to look at them, and at the sound of the first give and bequeath she could see all complexions changing subtly, as if some faint vibration were passing through them, save that of Mr. Rigg. He sat in unaltered calm, and— in fact, the company, preoccupied with more important problems, and with the complication of listening to bequests which might or might not be revoked, had ceased to think of him. Fred blushed, and Mr. Vincey found it impossible to do without his snuff-box in his hand, though he kept it closed. The small bequests came first, and even the recollection that there was another will, and that poor Peter might have thought better of it, could not quell the rising disgust and indignation. One likes to be done well by, in every tense, past, present, and future. And here was Peter, capable five years ago, of leaving only two hundred apiece to his own brothers and sisters, and only a hundred apiece to his own nephews and nieces. The Garths were not mentioned, but Mrs. Vincy and Rosamond were each to have a hundred. Mr. Trumbull was to have the gold-headed cane and fifty pounds. The other second cousins and the cousins present were each to have the like handsome sum, which, as the Saturnine cousin observed, was a sort of legacy that left a man nowhere. And there was much more of such offensive dribbling in favor of persons not present. Problematical, and, it was to be feared, low connections. Altogether, reckoning hastily, there were about three thousand disposed of. Where, then, had Peter meant the rest of the money to go? And where the land? And what was revoked and what was not revoked? And was the revocation for better or for worse? All emotion must be conditional, and might turn out to be the wrong thing. The men were strong enough to bear up and keep quiet under this confused suspense, some letting their lower lip fall, others pursing it up, according to the habit of their muscles. But Jane and Martha sank under the rush of questions, and began to cry. Poor Mrs. Cranch being half moved with the consolation of getting any hundreds at all without working for them, and half aware that her share was scanty, whereas Mrs. Wall's mind was entirely flooded with the sense of being an own sister and getting little, while somebody else was to have much. The general expectation now was that the much would fall to Fred Vincy. But the Vincies themselves were surprised when ten thousand pounds in specified investments were declared to be bequeathed to him. Was the land coming too? Fred bit his lips. It was difficult to help smiling, and Mrs. Vincy felt herself the happiest of women, possible revocation shrinking out of sight in this dazzling vision. There was still a residue of personal property as well as the land, but the whole was left to one person, and that person was—oh, possibilities! Oh, expectations founded on the favor of close old gentlemen! Oh, endless vocatives that would still leave expressions slipping helpless from the measurement of mortal folly! That residuary legatee was Joshua Rigg who was also sole executor and who was to take thenceforth the name of featherstone there was a rustling which seemed like a shudder running round the room every one stared afresh at mr Rigg, who apparently experienced no surprise a most singular testamentary disposition exclaimed mr trumbull preferring for once that he should be considered ignorant in the past but there is a second will, there is a further document. We have not yet heard the final wishes of the deceased. Mary Garth was feeling that what they had yet to hear were not the final wishes. The second will revoked everything except the legacies to the low persons before mentioned, some alterations in these being the occasion of the codicil, and the bequest of all the land lying in Lowick Parish with all the stock and household furniture to Joshua Rigg. The residue of the property was to be devoted to the erection and endowment of almshouses for old men, to be called Featherstone's almshouses, and to be built on a piece of land near Middlemarch, already bought for the purpose by the testator, he wishing, so the document declared, to please God Almighty. Nobody present had a farthing, but Mr. Trumbull had the gold-headed cane. It took some time for the company to recover the power of expression. Mary dared not look at Fred. Mr. Vincey was the first to speak, after using his snuff-box energetically, and he spoke with loud indignation. "'The most unaccountable will I ever heard. I should say he was not in his right mind when he made it. I should say this last will was void,' added Mr. Vincy feeling that this expression put the thing in the true light. Eh, Standish? Our deceased friend always knew what he was about, I think, said Mr. Standish. Everything is quite regular. Here is a letter from Clemens of Brassing tied with the will. He drew it up. A very respectable solicitor. I never noticed any alienation of mind, any aberration of intellect in the late Mr. Featherstone, said Borthrop Trumbull but I call this will eccentric. I was always willingly of service to the old soul, and he intimated pretty plainly a sense of obligation which would show itself in his will. The gold-headed cane is farcical considered as an acknowledgment to me, but happily I am above mercenary considerations. "'There's nothing very surprising in the matter that I can see,' said Caleb Garth. "'Anybody might have had more reason for wondering if the will had been what you might expect,' from an open-minded straightforward man for my part i wish there was no such thing as a will oh that's a strange sentiment to come from a christian man by god said the lawyer i should like to know how you will back that up garth oh said caleb leaning forward adjusting his finger-tips with nicety and looking meditatively on the ground it always seemed to him that words were the hardest part of business "'But here Mr. Jonah Featherstone made himself heard. "'Well, he always was a fine hypocrite, was my brother Peter. "'But this will cuts out everything. "'If I'd known, a wagon and six horses shouldn't have drawn me from brassing. "'I'll put a white hat and a drab coat on to-morrow.' "'Dear, dear,' wept Mrs. Crench, "'and we've been at the expense of travelling, "'and that poor lad sitting idle here so long it's the first time i ever heard my brother peter was so wishful to please god almighty but if i was to be struck helpless i must say it's hard i can think no other it'll do him no good where he's gone that's my belief said solomon with a bitterness which was remarkably genuine though his tone could not help being sly peter was a bad liver and almshouses won't cover it when he's had the impudence to show it at the last and all the while he has got his own lawful family brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces and has sat in church with them whenever he thought well to come said mrs Wall, and might have left his property so respectable to them that's never been used to extravagance or unsteadiness in no manner of way and not so poor but what they could have saved every penny and made more of it. And me, the trouble I've been at, times and times, to come here and be sisterly, and him with things on his mind all the while that might make anybody's flesh creep. But if the Almighty's allowed it, he means to punish him for it. Brother Solomon, I shall be going, if you'll drive me." "'I've no desire to put my foot on the premises again,' said Solomon." I've got land of my own and property of my own to will away. "'It's a poor tale of how luck goes in the world,' said Jonah. "'It never answers to have a bit of spirit in you. "'You'd better be a dog in the manger. "'But those above ground might learn a lesson. "'One fool's will is enough in a family.' "'There's more ways than one of being a fool,' said Solomon. "'I shan't leave my money to be poured down the sink, "'and I shan't leave it to foundlings from Africa. I like featherstones that were brewed such, and not turned featherstones with sticking the name on them. Solomon addressed these remarks in a loud aside to Mrs. Wall as he rose to accompany her. Brother Jonah felt himself capable of much more stinging wit than this, but he reflected that there was no use in offending the new proprietor of Stone Court, until you were certain that he was quite without intentions of hospitality towards witty men whose name he was about to bear." Mr. Joshua Rigg, in fact, appeared to trouble himself little about any innuendoes, but showed a notable change of manner, walking coolly up to Mr. Standish and putting business questions with much coolness. He had a high, chirping voice and a vile accent. Fred, whom he no longer moved to laughter, thought him the lowest monster he had ever seen. But Fred was feeling rather sick. The Middlemarch mercer waited for an opportunity of engaging Mr. Rigg in conversation. There was no knowing how many pairs of legs the new proprietor might require hose for, and profits were more to be relied on than legacies. Also, the mercer, as a second cousin, was dispassionate enough to feel curiosity. Mr. Vincey, after his one outburst, had remained proudly silent though too much preoccupied with unpleasant feelings to think of moving, till he observed that his wife had gone to Fred's side and was crying silently while she held her darling's hand. He rose immediately, and turning his back on the company, while he said to her in an undertone, Don't give way, Lucy. Don't make a fool of yourself, my dear, before these people. He added in his usual loud voice, Go and order the Phaeton, Fred. I have no time to waste. Mary Garth had before this been getting ready to go home with her father. She met Fred in the hall, and now for the first time had the courage to look at him. He had that withered sort of paleness which will sometimes come on young faces, and his hand was very cold when she shook it. Mary too was agitated. She was conscious that, fatally, without will of her own, she had perhaps made a great difference to Fred's lot. "'Good-bye,' she said, with affectionate sadness. "'Be brave, Fred. "'I do believe you are better without the money. "'What was the good of it to Mr. Featherstone?' "'That's all very fine,' said Fred, pettishly. "'What is a fellow to do? "'I must go into the church now.' "'He knew that this would vex Mary. "'Very well. "'Then she must tell him what else he could do. "'And I thought I should be able to pay your father at once "'and make everything right.' and you have not even a hundred pounds left you. What shall you do now, Mary? Take another situation, of course, as soon as I can get one. My father has enough to keep the rest without me. Good-bye. In a very short time Stone Court was cleared of well-brewed Featherstones and other long-accustomed visitors. Another stranger had been brought to settle in the neighborhood of Middlemarch, but in the case of Mr. Rigg Featherstone, there was more discontent with immediate visible consequences than speculation as to the effect which his presence might have in the future. No soul was prophetic enough to have any foreboding as to what might appear on the trial of Joshua Rigg. And here I am naturally led to reflect on the means of elevating a low subject. Historical parallels are remarkably efficient in this way. The chief objection to them is, that the diligent narrator may lack space, or, what is often the same thing, may not be able to think of them with any degree of particularity, though he may have a philosophical confidence that if known they would be illustrative. It seems an easier and shorter way to dignity to observe that, since there never was a true story which could not be told in parables, where you might put a monkey for a margrave, and vice versa whatever has been or is to be narrated by me about low people, may be ennobled by being considered a parable, so that if any bad habits and ugly consequences are brought into view, the reader may have the relief of regarding them as not more than figuratively ungenteel, and may feel himself virtually in company with persons of some style. Thus, while I tell the truth about lubies, my reader's imagination need not be entirely excluded from an occupation with lords, and the petty sums which any bankrupt of high standing would be sorry to retire upon may be lifted to the level of high commercial transactions by the inexpensive addition of proportional ciphers. As to any provincial history in which the agents are all of high moral rank, that must be of a date long posterior to the first reform bill. And Peter Featherstone, you perceive, was dead and buried some months before Lord Grey came into office. End of chapter Thirty Five. Chapter Thirty Six of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayot. Tis strange to see the humours of these men, these great aspiring spirits that should be wise, for being the nature of great spirits to love, to be where they may be most eminent, they, rating of themselves so far above us in conceit, with whom they do frequent. Imagine how we wonder and esteem all that they do or say, which makes them strive to make our admiration more extreme which they suppose they cannot, lest they give notice of their extreme and highest thoughts. Daniel, Tragedy of Philotus Mr. Vincey went home from the reading of the will with his point of view considerably changed in relation to many subjects. He was an open-minded man, but given to indirect modes of expressing himself. When he was disappointed in a market for his silk braids, he swore at the groom. When his brother-in-law Bulstrode had vexed him, he made cutting remarks on Methodism, and it was now apparent that he regarded Fred's idleness with a sudden increase of severity by his throwing an embroidered cap out of the smoking-room on to the hall floor. "'Well, sir,' he observed, when that young gentleman was moving off to bed, "'I hope you've made up your mind now to go up next term and pass your examination.' I've taken my resolution, so I advise you to lose no time in taking yours." Fred made no answer. He was too utterly depressed. Twenty-four hours ago he had thought that, instead of needing to know what he should do, he should by this time know that he needed to do nothing—that he should hunt in pink, have a first-rate hunter, ride to cover on a fine hack, and be generally respected for doing so. Moreover that he should be able at once to pay Mr. Garth, and that Mary could no longer have any reason for not marrying him. And all this was to have come without study or other inconvenience, purely by the favor of providence in the shape of an old gentleman's caprice. But now, at the end of the twenty-four hours, all those firm expectations were upset. It was rather hard lines that, while he was smarting under this disappointment, He should be treated as if he could have helped it. But he went away silently, and his mother pleaded for him. "'Don't be hard on the boy, Vincy. He'll turn out well yet, though that wicked man has deceived him. I feel as sure as I sit here Fred will turn out well. Else why was he brought back from the brink of the grave? And I call it a robbery. It was like giving him the land to promise it. And what is promising?' "'if making everybody believe is not promising? "'And you see he did leave him ten thousand pounds, "'and then took it away again.' "'Took it away again,' said Mr. Vincey pettishly. "'I tell you the lad's an unlucky lad, Lucy, "'and you've always spoiled him.' "'Well, Vincy, he was my first, "'and you made a fine fuss with him when he came. "'You were as proud as proud,' said Mrs. Vincey, "'easily recovering her cheerful smile.' Who knows what babies will turn to? I was fool enough, I dare say, said the husband. More mildly, however. But who has handsomer, better children than ours? Fred is far beyond other people's sons. You may hear it in his speech that he has kept college company. And Rosamond, where is there a girl like her? She might stand beside any lady in the land and only look the better for it. You see, Mr. Lydgate has kept the highest company and been everywhere, and he fell in love with her at once. Not but what I could have wished Rosamond had not engaged herself. She might have met somebody on a visit who would have been a far better match—I mean, at her schoolfellow Miss Willoughby's. There are relations in that family quite as high as Mr. Lydgate's. "'Damn relations!' said Mr. Vincy. "'I've had enough of them.' I don't want a son-in-law who has got nothing but his relations to recommend him. "'Why, my dear,' said Mrs. Vincy, "'you seemed as pleased as could be about it. It's true I wasn't at home, but Rosamond told me you hadn't a word to say against the engagement. And she has begun to buy in the best linen and cambric for her underclothing.' "'Not by my will,' said Mr. Vincy. "'I shall have enough to do this year with an idle scamp of a son.' without paying for wedding clothes. The times are as tight as can be. Everybody is being ruined, and I don't believe Lydgate has got a farthing. I shan't give my consent to their marrying. Let em wait, as their elders have done before em. Rosamond will take it hard, Vincy, and you know you never could bear to cross her. Yes, I could. The sooner the engagement's off, the better. I don't believe he'll ever make an income the way he goes on, He makes enemies, that's all I hear of his making. But he stands very high with Mr. Bulstrode, my dear. The marriage would please him, I should think. Please the deuce, said Mr. Vincy. Bulstrode won't pay for their keep. And if Lydgate thinks I'm going to give money for them to set up housekeeping, he's mistaken, that's all. I expect I shall have to put down my horses soon. You'd better tell Rosy what I say.' This was a not-infrequent procedure with Mr. Vincy, to be rash in jovial assent, and on becoming subsequently conscious that he had been rash, to employ others in making the offensive retractation. However, Mrs. Vincy, who never willingly opposed her husband, lost no time the next morning in letting Rosamond know what he had said. Rosamond, examining some muslin work, listened in silence and at the end gave a certain turn of her graceful neck, of which only long experience could teach you that it meant perfect obstinacy. "'What do you say, my dear?' said her mother, with affectionate deference. "'Papa does not mean anything of the kind,' said Rosamond, quite calmly. "'He has always said that he wished me to marry the man I loved, and I shall marry Mr. Lydgate. It is seven weeks now since Papa gave his consent.' "'and I hope we shall have Mrs. Breton's house. "'Well, my dear, I shall leave you to manage your papa. "'You always do manage everybody. "'But if we ever do go and get to Masque, "'Sadler's is the place, far better than Hopkins. "'Mrs. Breton's is very large, though. "'I should love you to have such a house, "'but it will take a great deal of furniture, "'carpeting and everything, besides plate and glass. "'And you hear your papa says he will give no money.' Do you think Mr. Lydgate expects it? You cannot imagine that I should ask him, Mamma, Of course, he understands his own affairs, but he may have been looking for money, my dear, and we all thought of your having a pretty legacy as well as Fred and Now everything is so dreadful. There's no pleasure in thinking of anything with that poor boy disappointed as he is that has nothing to do with my marriage, Mamma. "'Fred must leave off being idle. "'I am going upstairs to take this work to Miss Morgan. "'She does the open hemming very well. "'Mary Garth might do some work for me now, I should think. "'Her sewing is exquisite. "'It is the nicest thing I know about Mary. "'I should so like to have all my cambric frilling double-hemmed. "'And it takes a long time.' "'Mrs. Vincy's belief that Rosamond could manage her papa was well-founded.' Apart from his dinners and his coursing, Mr. Vincey, blustering as he was, had as little of his own way as if he had been a prime minister. The force of circumstances was easily too much for him, as it is for most pleasure-loving florid men, and the circumstance called Rosamond was particularly forcible by means of that mild persistence which, as we know, enables a white, soft, living substance to make its way in spite of opposing rock. Papa was not a rock. He had no other fixity than that fixity of alternating impulses, sometimes called habit, and this was altogether unfavorable to his taking the only decisive line of conduct in relation to his daughter's engagement, namely, to inquire thoroughly into Lydgate's circumstances, declare his own inability to furnish money, and forbid alike either a speedy marriage or an engagement which must be too lengthy. That seems very simple and easy in the statement, but a disagreeable resolve formed in the chill hours of the morning had as many conditions against it as the early frost, and rarely persisted under the warming influences of the day. The indirect though emphatic expression of opinion to which Mr. Vincey was prone suffered much restraint in this case. Lydgate was a proud man towards whom innuendos were obviously unsafe, and throwing his hat on the floor was out of the question. Mr. Vincy was a little in awe of him, a little vain that he wanted to marry Rosamond, a little indisposed to raise a question of money in which his own position was not advantageous, a little afraid of being worsted in dialogue with a man better educated and more highly bred than himself, and a little afraid of doing what his daughter would not like. The part Mr. Vincy preferred playing was that of the generous host whom nobody criticizes. In the earlier half of the day there was business to hinder any formal communication of an adverse resolve. In the later there was dinner, wine, whist, and general satisfaction and in the meanwhile the hours were each leaving their little deposit and gradually forming the final reason for inaction, namely that action was too late. The accepted lover spent most of his evenings in Lowick Gate, and a love-making not at all dependent on money advances from fathers-in-law or prospective income from a profession went on flourishingly under Mr. Vinci's own eyes young love-making, that gossamer web. Even the points it clings to, the things whence its subtle interlacings are swung, are scarcely perceptible—momentary touches of fingertips, meetings of rays from blue and dark orbs, unfinished phrases, lightest changes of cheek and lip, faintest tremors. The web itself is made of spontaneous beliefs and indefinable joys, yearnings of one life towards another, visions of completeness, indefinite trust. And Lydgate fell to spinning that web from his inward self with wonderful rapidity, in spite of experience supposed to be finished off with the drama of lore. In spite, too, of medicine and biology, for the inspection of macerated muscle, or of eyes presented in a dish, like Santa Lucia's, and other incidents of scientific inquiry, are observed to be less incompatible with poetic love than a native dullness or a lively addiction to the lowest prose. As for Rosamond, she was in the water-lily's expanding wonderment at its own fuller life, and she too was spinning industriously at the mutual web, All this went on in the corner of the drawing-room where the piano stood, and, subtle as it was, the light made it a sort of rainbow visible to many observers besides Mr. Fairbrother. The certainty that Miss Vincy and Mr. Lydgate were engaged became general in Middlemarch without the aid of formal announcement. Aunt Bulstrode was again stirred to anxiety, but this time she addressed herself to her brother, going to the warehouse expressly to avoid Mrs. Vincy's volatility. His replies were not satisfactory. "'Walter, you never mean to tell me that you have allowed all this to go on without inquiry into Mr. Lydgate's prospects,' said Mrs. Bulstrode, opening her eyes with wider gravity at her brother, who was in his peevish warehouse-humor. "'Think of this girl brought up in luxury,' In too worldly a way, I am sorry to say, what will she do on a small income? Oh, confounded Harriet, what can I do when men come into the town without any asking of mine? Did you shut up your house against Lydgate? Bulstrode has pushed him forward more than anybody. I never made any fuss about the young fellow. You should go and talk to your husband about it, not me. Well, really, Walter, how can Mr. Bulstrode be to blame? I am sure he did not wish for the engagement. Oh, if Bulstrode had not taken him by the hand, I should never have invited him. But you called him in to attend on Fred, and I am sure that was a mercy, said Mrs. Bulstrode, losing her clue in the intricacies of the subject. I don't know about mercy, said Mr. Vincey testily. I know I am worried more than I like with my family i was a good brother to you harriet before you married bulstrode and i must say he doesn't always show that friendly spirit towards your family that might have been expected of him mr vincy was very little like a jesuit but no accomplished jesuit could have turned a question more adroitly harriet had to defend her husband instead of blaming her brother and the conversation ended at a point as far from the beginning as some recent sparring between the brothers-in-law at a vestry meeting. Mrs. Bulstrode did not repeat her brother's complaints to her husband, but in the evening she spoke to him of Lydgate and Rosamond. He did not share her warm interest, however, and only spoke with resignation of the risks attendant on the beginning of medical practice and the desirability of prudence. "'I am sure we are bound to pray for that thoughtless girl,' brought up as she has been," said Mrs. Bulstrode, wishing to rouse her husband's feelings. Truly, my dear, said Mr. Bulstrode, assentingly, those who are not of this world can do little else to arrest the errors of the obstinately worldly. That is what we must accustom ourselves to recognize with regard to your brother's family. I could have wished that Mr. Lydgate had not entered into such a union." but my relations with him are limited to that use of his gifts for god's purposes which is taught us by the divine government under each dispensation mrs bulstrode said no more attributing some dissatisfaction which she felt to her own want of spirituality she believed that her husband was one of those men whose memoirs should be written when they died as to lydgate himself having been accepted He was prepared to accept all the consequences which he believed himself to foresee with perfect clearness. Of course he must be married in a year, perhaps even in half a year. This was not what he had intended, but other schemes would not be hindered. They would simply adjust themselves anew. Marriage, of course, must be prepared for in the usual way. A house must be taken instead of the rooms he at present occupied, and Lydgate, having heard rosamond speak with admiration of old mrs Breton's house situated in lowick gate took notice when it fell vacant after the old lady's death and immediately entered into treaty for it he did this in an episodic way very much as he gave orders to his tailor for every requisite of perfect dress without any notion of being extravagant on the contrary he would have despised any ostentation of expense His profession had familiarized him with all grades of poverty, and he cared much for those who suffered hardships. He would have behaved perfectly at a table where the sauce was served in a jug with the handle off, and he would have remembered nothing about a grand dinner, except that a man was there who talked well. But it had never occurred to him that he should live in any other than what he would have called an ordinary way, with green glasses for hawk, and excellent waiting at table. In warming himself at French social theories he had brought away no smell of scorching. We may handle even extreme opinions with impunity while our furniture, our dinner-giving, and preference for our moral bearings in our own case link us indissolubly with the established order. And Lydgate's tendency was not towards extreme opinions. He would have liked no barefooted doctrines, being particular about his boots. He was no radical in relation to anything but medical reform and the prosecution of discovery. In the rest of practical life he walked by hereditary habit, half from that personal pride and unreflecting egoism which I have already called commonness, and half from that naivete which belonged to preoccupation with favorite ideas any inward debate lydgate had as to the consequences of this engagement which had stolen upon him turned on the paucity of time rather than of money certainly being in love and being expected continually by some one who always turned out to be prettier than memory could represent her to be did interfere with the diligent use of spare hours which might serve some plodding fellow of a german to make the great imminent discovery. This was really an argument for not deferring the marriage too long, as he implied to Mr. Fairbrother one day that the vicar came to his room with some pond products, which he wanted to examine under a better microscope than his own, and, finding Lydgate's table full of apparatus and specimens in confusion, said sarcastically, "'Eros has degenerated.' He began by introducing order and harmony, and now he brings back chaos. "'Yes, at some stages,' said Lydgate, lifting his brows and smiling, while he began to arrange his microscope. "'But a better order will begin after.' "'Soon,' said the vicar. "'I hope so, really. This unsettled state of affairs uses up the time, and when one has notions in science every moment is an opportunity.' I feel sure that marriage must be the best thing for a man who wants to work steadily. He has everything at home, then. No teasing with personal speculations. He can get calmness and freedom. You are an enviable dog, said the vicar, to have such a prospect. Rosamond, calmness and freedom, all to your share. Here I am with nothing but my pipe and pond animalcules. Now, are you ready?' lydgate did not mention to the vicar another reason he had for wishing to shorten the period of courtship it was rather irritating to him even with the wine of love in his veins to be obliged to mingle so often with the family party at the vincys and to enter so much into middlemarch gossip protracted good cheer whist playing and general futility he had to be deferential when mr vincy decided questions with trenchant ignorance especially as to those liquors which were the best inward pickle preserving you from the effects of bad air mrs vincy's openness and simplicity were quite unstreaked with suspicion as to the subtle offence she might give to the taste of her intended son-in-law and altogether lydgate had to confess to himself that he was descending a little in relation to rosamond's family but that exquisite creature herself suffered in the same sort of way it was at least one delightful thought that in marrying her he could give her a much-needed transplantation dear he said to her one evening in his gentlest tone as he sat down by her and looked closely at her face but i must first say that he had found her alone in the drawing-room where the great old-fashioned window, almost as large as the side of the room, was opened to the summer scents of the garden at the back of the house. Her father and mother were gone to a party, and the rest were all out with the butterflies. "'Dear, your eyelids are red.' "'Are they?' said Rosamond. "'I wonder why.' It was not in her nature to pour forth wishes or grievances. They only came forth gracefully on solicitation." "'As if you could hide it from me,' said Lydgate, laying his hand tenderly on both of hers. "'Don't I see a tiny drop on one of the lashes? "'Things trouble you, and you don't tell me. "'That is unloving.' "'Why should I tell you what you cannot alter? "'They are everyday things. "'Perhaps they have been a little worse lately. "'Family annoyances? "'Don't fear speaking. "'I guess them.' papa has been more irritable lately fred makes him angry and this morning there was a fresh quarrel because fred threatens to throw his whole education away and do something quite beneath him and besides rosamond hesitated and her cheeks were gathering a slight flush lydgate had never seen her in trouble since the morning of their engagement and he had never felt so passionately towards her as this moment He kissed the hesitating lips gently, as if to encourage them. I feel that papa is not quite pleased about our engagement, Rosamond continued, almost in a whisper. And he said last night that he should certainly speak to you, and say it must be given up. Will you give it up? said Lydgate, with quick energy, almost angrily. "'I never give up anything that I choose to do,' said Rosamond, recovering the calmness at the touching of this cord. "'God bless you,' said Lydgate, kissing her again. "'This constancy of purpose in the right place was adorable.' He went on. "'It is too late now for your father to say that our engagement must be given up. You are of age, and I claim you as mine. If anything is done to make you unhappy—' That is a reason for hastening our marriage. An unmistakable delight shone forth from the blue eyes that met his, and the radiance seemed to light up all his future with mild sunshine. Ideal happiness, of the kind known in the Arabian nights, in which you are invited to step, from the labor and discord of the street, into a paradise where everything is given to you and nothing claimed, seemed to be an affair of a few weeks waiting more or less why should we defer it he said with ardent insistence i've taken the house now everything else can soon be got ready can it not you will not mind about new clothes those can be bought afterwards what original notions you clever men have said rosamond dimpling with more thorough laughter than usual at this humorous incongruity THIS IS THE FIRST TIME I EVER HEARD OF WEDDING CLOTHES BEING BOUGHT AFTER MARRIAGE. BUT YOU DON'T MEAN TO SAY YOU WOULD INSIST ON MY WAITING MONTHS FOR THE SAKE OF CLOTHES, SAID LYDGATE, HALF THINKING THAT ROSAMOND WAS TORMENTING HIM prettily, AND HALF FEARING THAT SHE REALLY SHRANK FROM SPEEDY MARRIAGE. REMEMBER, WE ARE LOOKING FORWARD TO A BETTER SORT OF HAPPINESS EVEN THAN THIS, BEING CONTINUALLY TOGETHER, INDEPENDENT OF OTHERS, AND ORDERING OUR LIVES AS WE WILL come dear tell me how soon you can be altogether mine there was a serious pleading in lydgate's tone as if he felt that she would be injuring him by any fantastic delays rosamond became serious too and slightly meditative in fact she was going through many intricacies of lace edging and hosiery and petticoat tucking in order to give an answer that would be at least approximative six weeks would be ample say so rosamond insisted lydgate releasing her hands to put his arm gently around her one little hand immediately went to pat her hair while she gave her neck a meditative turn and then said seriously there would be the house linen and the furniture to be prepared still mamma could see to those while we were away yes to be sure we must be away a week or so Oh, more than that! said Rosamond, earnestly. She was thinking of her evening dresses for the visit to Sir Godwin Lydgate's, which she had long been secretly hoping for as a delightful employment of at least one quarter of the honeymoon, even if she deferred her introduction to the uncle who was a doctor of divinity, also a pleasing though sober kind of rank, when sustained by blood. She looked at her lover with some wondering remonstrance as she spoke, and he readily understood that she might wish to lengthen the sweet time of double solitude. "'Whatever you wish, my darling, when the day is fixed. But let us take a decided course, and put an end to any discomfort you may be suffering. Six weeks. I am sure they would be ample.' "'I could certainly hasten the work,' said Rosamond. "'Will you then mention it to papa? I think it would be better to write to him.' She blushed and looked at him as the garden-flowers look at us, when we walk forth happily among them in the transcendent evening light. Is there not a soul beyond utterance, half-nymph, half-child, in those delicate petals which glow and breathe about the centers of deep color? He touched her ear and a little bit of neck under it with his lips, and they sat quite still for many minutes which flowed by them like a small gurgling brook with the kisses of the sun upon it. Rosamond thought that no one could be more in love than she was, and Lydgate thought that after all his wild mistakes and absurd credulity he had found perfect womanhood, felt as if already breathed upon by exquisite wedded affection such as would be bestowed by an accomplished creature who venerated his high musings, and momentous labors and who would never interfere with them who would create order in the home and accounts with still magic yet keep her fingers ready to touch the lute and transform life into romance at any moment who was instructed to the true womanly limit and not a hair's breadth beyond docile therefore and ready to carry out behests which came from that limit It was plainer now than ever that his notion of remaining much longer a bachelor had been a mistake. Marriage would not be an obstruction, but a furtherance. And happening the next day to accompany a patient to Brassing, he saw a dinner service there which struck him as so exactly the right thing that he bought it at once. It saved time to do these things just when you thought of them, and Lydgate hated ugly crockery. The dinner service in question was expensive, but that might be in the nature of dinner services. Furnishing was necessarily expensive, but then it had to be done only once. It must be lovely, said Mrs. Vincy, when Lydgate mentioned his purchase with some descriptive touches. Just what Rosy ought to have. I trust in heaven it won't be broken. One must hire servants who will not break things, said Lydgate. Certainly this was reasoning with an imperfect vision of sequences, but at that period there was no sort of reasoning which was not more or less sanctioned by men of science. Of course it was unnecessary to defer the mention of anything to Mamma, who did not readily take views that were not cheerful, and, being a happy wife herself, had hardly any feeling but pride in her daughter's marriage. But Rosamond had good reasons for suggesting to Lydgate that papa should be appealed to in writing she prepared for the arrival of the letter by walking with her papa to the warehouse the next morning and telling him on the way that mr lydgate wished to be married soon nonsense my dear said mr vincy what has he got to marry on you'd much better give up the engagement i've told you so pretty plainly before this what have you had such an education for if you are to go and marry a poor man It's a cruel thing for a father to see. Mr. Lydgate is not poor papa. He bought Mr. Peacock's practice, which, they say, is worth eight or nine hundred a year. Stuff and nonsense! What's buying a practice? He might as well buy next year's swallows. It'll all slip through his fingers. On the contrary, papa, he will increase the practice. See how he has been called in by the Chettams and Casabons i hope he knows i shan't give anything with this disappointment about fred and parliament going to be dissolved and machine breaking everywhere and an election coming on dear papa what can that have to do with my marriage a pretty deal to do with it we may all be ruined for what i know the country's in that state some say it's the end of the world and be hanged if i don't think it looks like it anyhow It's not a time for me to be drawing money out of my business, and I should wish Lydgate to know that. "'I am sure he expects nothing, papa, and he has such very high connections. He is sure to rise in one way or another. He's engaged in making scientific discoveries.' Mr. Vincy was silent. "'I cannot give up my only prospect of happiness, papa. Mr. Lydgate is a gentleman.' I could never love any one who was not a perfect gentleman. You would not like me to go into a consumption, as Arabella Hawley did. And you know that I never changed my mind. Again papa was silent. Promise me, papa, that you will consent to what we wish. We shall never give each other up, and you know that you have always objected to long courtships and late marriages. There was a little more urgency of this kind till Mr. Vincey said, "'Well, well, child, he must write to me first before I can answer him.' And Rosamond was certain that she had gained her point. Mr. Vincey's answer consisted chiefly in a demand that Lydgate should insure his life, a demand immediately conceded. This was a delightfully reassuring idea supposing that Lydgate died, but in the meantime not a self-supporting idea.' However, it seemed to make everything comfortable about Rosamond's marriage, and the necessary purchases went on with much spirit. Not without prudential considerations, however. A bride, who is going to visit at a baronet's, must have a few first-rate pocket-handkerchiefs, but beyond the absolutely necessary half-dozen, Rosamond contented herself without the very highest style of embroidery and valenciennes. Lydgate also, finding that his sum of eight hundred pounds had been considerably reduced since he had come to Middlemarch, restrained his inclination for some plate of an old pattern which was shown to him when he went into Kibble's establishment at Brassing to buy forks and spoons. He was too proud to act as if he presupposed that Mr. Vincy would advance money to provide furniture, and though, since it would not be necessary to pay for everything at once, some bills would be left standing over. He did not waste time in conjecturing how much his father-in-law would give in the form of dowry to make payment easy. He was not going to do anything extravagant, but the requisite things must be bought, and it would be bad economy to buy them of poor quality. All these matters were by the by. Lydgate foresaw that science and his profession were the objects he should alone pursue enthusiastically. But he could not imagine himself pursuing them in such a home as Wrench had, the doors all open, the oilcloth worn, the children in soiled pinafores, and lunch lingering in the form of bones, black-handled knives, and willow pattern. But Wrench had a wretched, lymphatic wife who made a mummy of herself indoors in a large shawl, and he must have altogether begun with an ill-chosen domestic apparatus. Rosamond, however, was on her side, much occupied with conjectures, though her quick imitative perception warned her against betraying them too crudely. "'I shall like so much to know your family,' she said one day, when the wedding journey was being discussed. "'We might perhaps take a direction that would allow us to see them as we returned.' "'Which of your uncles do you like the best?' "'Oh, my Uncle Godwin, I think. He is a good-natured old fellow.' "'You were constantly at his house in Quallingham when you were a boy, were you not? I should so like to see the old spot and everything that you were used to. Does he know you are going to be married?' "'No,' said Lydgate, carelessly, turning in his chair and rubbing his hair up. "'Do send him word of it, you naughty, undutiful nephew.' he will perhaps ask you to take me to Quallingham, and then you could show me about the grounds, and I could imagine you there when you were a boy. Remember, you see me in my home, just as it has been since I was a child. It is not fair that I should be so ignorant of yours. But perhaps you would be a little ashamed of me. I forgot that. Lydgate smiled at her tenderly. And readily accepted the suggestion that the proud pleasure of showing so charming a bride was worth some trouble. And now he came to think of it, he would like to see the old spots with Rosamond. I will write to him then. But my cousins are bores. It seemed magnificent to Rosamond to be able to speak so slightingly of a baronet's family, and she felt much contentment in the prospect of being able to estimate them contemptuously on her own account but mamma was near spoiling all a day or two later by saying i hope your uncle sir godwin will not look down on rosy mr lydgate i should think he would do something handsome a thousand or two can be nothing to a baronet mamma said rosamond blushing deeply and lydgate pitied her so much that he remained silent and went to the other end of the room to examine a print curiously, as if he had been absent-minded. Mamma had a little filial lecture afterwards, and was docile as usual. But Rosamond reflected that if any of those high-bred cousins who were bores should be induced to visit Middlemarch, they would see many things in her own family which might shock them. Hence it seemed desirable that Lydgate should by and by get some first-rate position elsewhere than in Middlemarch, and this could hardly be difficult in the case of a man who had a titled uncle and could make discoveries. Lydgate, you perceive, had talked fervidly to Rosamond of his hopes as to the highest uses of his life, and had found it delightful to be listened to by a creature who would bring him the sweet furtherance of satisfying affection beauty, repose, such help as our thoughts get from the summer sky and the flower-fringed meadows. Lydgate relied much on the psychological difference between what, for the sake of variety, I will call goose and gander, especially on the innate submissiveness of the goose, as beautifully corresponding to the strength of the gander. End of chapter 36